Hello, drunks. Hello, pissheads. Hello, alcoholics. It's the penultimate episode of the Translated Chinese Fiction Podcast, and our book for this episode is Moyan's The Republic of Wine. This is going to be a bumper episode with two interviews, two conversations. The first drunk, the second, sorry, pardon me, the first sober, the second drunk. Although, just to make things complicated or fun, we recorded the drunk one first and then quite a while later recorded the sober one and you'll hear some things that indicate the, the change in time and possibly some things that indicate in a slight mix uh, not mix up switch up in the hosts that we had on i won't give you too much of a preamble uh, i'll just take us right into the news the reason being i actually already recorded an intro but realized i did it with my low quality mic and i just can't face doing the great big opening speech i did last time so i'm sorry to do that to you but that is that is precisely what I'm doing to you. So for the translated Chinese fiction news, we've got three items. Two are actually the announcements of new books that are coming out soon, available for pre-order, and they both have the same translator. They're both translated by Jennifer Feely. And one of them is by the recently late Hong Kong writer Shishi. I'm going to try and read the entire blurb without stumbling. I managed to read one of these two books blurbs uh, without any stumbles and then this one by Shishi, Morning Abreast, I think I had two stumbles. So let's see how we go. This should be a first take, but we'll see. Here we go. In 1989, the Hong Kong cult classic writer Shishi was diagnosed with breast cancer and began writing in order to make sense of her diagnosis and treatment. Morning Abreast, published two and a half years later, is a disarmingly honest and deeply personal account of the author's experience of a mastectomy and of her subsequent recovery. The book opens with her gently rolling up a swimsuit. A beginning swimmer, she loves going to the pool, eavesdropping on conversations in the changing room, shopping for swimsuits. As this routine pleasure is revoked, the small loss stands in for the greater one. But Shishi's morning begins to take shape as a form of activism. In a conversational, even humorous manner, she describes her previous blinkered life of the mind before she came into her body and learned its language. Addressing her reader as frankly and unashamedly as an old friend, she coaxes and confesses, confronts society's failings, and advocates for a universal literacy of the body. Morning abreast... Fuck, that's a stumble. Morning abreast was heralded as the first Chinese language book to cast off the stigma of writing about illness and to expose the myths associated with breast cancer. A radical and generous book about creating in the midst of mourning. So that's <laughs> that's this book. Um, it is coming up for pre-order, I believe, from the New York Review of Books. Now the other book in question is by an author I hadn't heard of before, Lao Yi Wa, another Hong Kong writer, also translated by Jennifer Feeling. So this book's called Tongueless. And the hookline says it is a gripping psychological thriller steeped in the current political tensions in Hong Kong. So here we go. I did this with no stumbles last time. Let's see how we do this time. Tongless follows two rival teachers at a secondary school in Hong Kong who are instructed to switch from teaching in Cantonese to Mandarin or lose their jobs. Apolitical and focusing... That's one. Apolitical and focusing on surviving and thriving in their professional environment, Wai and Ling each approach the challenge differently. Wai, awkward and unpopular, becomes obsessed with Mandarin learning. Ling, knowing how to please her superiors and colleagues, thinks she can tactfully dodge the Mandarin challenge by deploying her social savviness. Wai eventually crumbles. It should have been crumples, so that's two. 
Y eventually crumples under the pressure and dies by suicide, leaving her colleague Ling to face seismic political and cultural change alone as she considers how far she will go to survive such a ruthlessly competitive work environment. Sharp, darkly humorous, and politically pointed, Tongless presciently engages with important issues facing Hong Kong today, during which so much of the city's uniqueness, especially its language, is at risk of being erased. Well, that wasn't a clean sweep on either book, but I think I improved on uh, Morning of Rest, so there's that. Okay, the third and final news item. It's just an interview I thought I'd highlight. It's published in a couple of places, I believe. One of them is the Cha Journal. It's an interview of the academic Sabina Knight by the uh, mostly translator of mostly children's literature, Helen Wang. Um, Sabina, I've read one of her books. It's the, um, I forget if it's the Oxford or Cambridge University, uh, I forget who publishes the series. Uh, they, they do these, this series called A Very Short Introduction. So there's like a very short introduction to typography that I own. There might be, for example, a very short introduction to quantum physics. Well, Sabina Knight is the author of the very short introduction to Chinese literature, but she has other uh, works as well, and she's an academic. So yeah, this is a thing you can read for free online. There'll be a link to it, as well as links to the publisher's page for these books in the show notes, like the description beneath this episode. Oh, I didn't say the publisher for Tongless, by the way. It's Feminist Press. So there you go. There you go. Okay, I think that does it for an intro, really. So just to clarify again, uh, we have a sober discussion first, and then a drunken discussion. The sober discussion features me, Dylan Levi King, and Michelle Dieter, both returning guests. And then the drunken conversation, we have Dylan again, and then joining us, we have Martin Winter, a poet and translator. So yeah, uh, enjoy. What else can I say? Enjoy and consider drinking while you're listening, especially for the drunken conversation. It it might improve the flavour. Right, so welcome listeners to the penultimate interview. Well, the penultimate episode, the first of two interviews in the penultimate episode of this podcast for the time being. It's Republic of Wine by Moyan. And here with me for part one of the two interviews you're going to hear, I've got two returning champions, Michelle Dieter and Dylan Levi-King. In part two, you're going to hear Dylan again. And rather than Michelle, it'll be one Michael Pinter. So here we go. Stupidly, uh, in part two, you'll hear us doing a full run-through of like the book's plot. So I think this time I'll just introduce the basic premise and we'll see where the conversation takes us, and then we'll get the more plot, plot-focused breakdown in part two. So keep listening if you want to hear that, or or skip ahead. So this book is about a cop, Mr. Ding Goer, who is sent out to a place called Liquorland to investigate reports of corruption and possible cannibalism within the party, and his investigation goes very badly, and a lot of drinking occurs. That's that's the basics. I guess we can now introduce the guests. If you've been listening a long time, you know who they are. Uh, you'll hear Dylan introduce himself again anyway, but just, just for fun. Um, Dylan, in brief, who are you? Why are you here? Sure. Um, um, I'm a translator of Chinese literature. I've translated Jia Pinghua. My most recent work is a forthcoming novel by Mai Jia which will be out in 2024 through Head of Zeus. And uh, I'm 
Moyen has been one of my favorites forever. Like many people, he's the first Chinese novelist whose book I ever sat down and and tried to work my way through. And Michelle, likewise, who are you? Why are you here? I am a translator and interpreter uh, based in Northwest England. Um, I also teach translation from time to time, and um, yeah, I just found this book interesting in that it really kind of stretched my reading. I love crime fiction. I have translated three Chinese crime fiction books so far, <laughs> but I don't always read literature with a capital L or this kind of literature that would be prize winning. And uh, it was a good challenge. Yeah, I think in part two, the interview that listeners are going to hear later, you're not going to hear us talk very much about the book as crime fiction, I don't think. So that's an interesting angle we could dig into. Um, I think in part two, you'll also hear me asking Dylan a bit like in depth, what's your experience of reading Moyen? So I'll I'll skip that question for you, Dylan. But Michelle, what um what stuff by this um this obscure, completely um unknown <laughs> Nobel Prize winning author uh, have you come across before? Uh, I started Red Sorghum and quit maybe four pages in, five pages in. Uh-huh. So I don't know nearly as much about Moyen as either of you. Um, but. Uh, there's a lot of Chinese authors out there, um, in my defense. <laughs> and it's, um, gosh, you know, it's interesting because when he did get the prize, like I remember reading about it in the news, just mm. kind of a little bit vaguely, but didn't really find any interest in reading the book until you asked me about it. So what put you off about Red Sorghum, if you can remember? I tried to start reading it in Chinese first, and it was enormous. So I didn't get very far <laughs> in like four days of time. And I think work kind of just got in the way. So put it to, put it to the side and left it in Brussels. <laughs> yeah, the second Moyan book I read, uh, Sandalwood Death, that was a, a gift to me from a listener. Um, I got uh, Sandalwood Death from Stefan Rusinov. And I just never picked the thing up because it was uh, colossal. It was like mm. this weird extra, extra large edition and unusual size with small, small writing. <laughs> but with with this novel, I had no such fear because I read it as an ebook, so I really went in blind as to like how long it was going to be. And from what I could glean, it's longish, but not not crazy long. But I honestly couldn't tell you how, how long how long this one is. And it it's I've heard Moyan's got a reputation for having these really long books, but my first contact with him was the novella Radish Radish. So like my intro to him was very short um, and very readable. But yeah, Sandalwood Death was definitely a little bit of a, not a slog, but a long, long journey. I don't know if there's much more we can dig into about the length of his books. Have you got, I guess you've maybe not got any other contact with him other than just hearing the hype. Yeah, basically that's what I'd say. Yeah. Um, I think we were going to maybe get more into the the question of like, why are so many of the the big books by Chinese authors so, so long or sometimes so flabby? I mean, that's come up gazillions of times on the show but I'll throw one to, to Dylan I know you've probably got thoughts do you think there's excess fat in the book do you think it's longer than it needs to be mm, well Chinese novels as, as you point out are, are are often very very flabby um I think I think we've I think me and you have discussed this before maybe it's yeah. a it's an it's a an approach to editing novels and it's also the um, sort of a sense of what the ideal novel is. The ideal novel is like the big 19th century realist um, epic, like um, Jude the Obscure or 
or um, something by Victor Hugo or something like that. They're all shooting for that. In this case, I think it's it's not, I think it's quite, it moves quite briskly and that length gives it room to indulge in those various um, formal experiments along the way. And um, I think his, his pacing is, is really, is really excellent. And it does, it is quite long. I, uh, I, I read it as an ebook also, so you don't really have a sense, but I didn't feel it dragging. And I, I, my reread of it um, took a couple evenings at, at most. Yeah. When you were saying about how the officer shooting for being like the classics, my brain went to the, the Chinese classics, which from the little I've read, as I understand it, they're often in fairly short, lots of very short chapters that are supposed to sort of hook you on to the next one. And this book, although it doesn't feel like it would be serialized in a newspaper, it is, we talked, we're going to, you're going to hear as listeners, you're going to hear us talk more about the structure in part two, but it does constantly jump between a main plot line and then letters between a fictional version of the author and his fictional admirer, one Mr. Lee Edo, something like one pint yep. Lee. So mm -hmm. it's really broken up into little little bite-sized pieces in that sense. It it probably was serialized. Um, oh, right. most most of these novels are like this would have probably appeared in somewhere like um Shu Yue, uh, October or or Harvest or or Remy Winshare, one of those literary journals before it came out. I'm almost I'm almost certain, although I can't name the mm. name the the journal for sure, but but it would have been really interesting in that form where where yeah. you would have had those scenes of sort of almost like straightforward noirish crime fiction and then suddenly this um snap over to these sort of nightmarish scenes of of cannibalism and and crazy stream of consciousness. Uh, uh, riffing. It would have also been funny reading in a literary journal fictional letters to a great author, basically, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. what's the word, flattering him. Right. I heard there was a controversy recently. Some cultural commentator in China said that the purpose of all the humanities is ultimately flattery, flattery industry or something. Apparently that pissed a lot of people off, but Having gone into an editing career and not being able to bag the really cool jobs, a lot of the jobs available are flattery, PR. Anyway, um, that's that's veering quite far away from the book. I I'm quite content to take a sort of a freestyle structure with this uh, interview. My next notes comment from Michelle writing about the author or commenting on how the author has inserted himself into the book. So like like we hinted at there, about half the book. Or a lot of the book are letters between Muyan, who appears to be a version of Muyan, who later actually shows up in the story, and this admirer, Alido, who's I think works as a brewer or in like a school of brewing studies or something. And then like right at the end, those two characters and they merge with the Liquorland plot line. So Michelle, I think you had a a comment about like authors who you've heard of do this to insert themselves into their own stories. Yeah, what's really interesting is that I read Anthony Horowitz just earlier this year. So I'm clearly not well enough read. Like I'm like, yep, I can identify one other author that I've seen do that. And you're like, ooh, interesting point. I can name five. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. it, it's been done before and it's not that surprising. Um, maybe what's also interesting, these look like they're all male names potentially, but there's just more male authors out there. So that's just statistics. That reflects who, <laughs> yeah, I think that reflects who I've read as well. Um, 
And a lot of them are people I read when I was younger. The most recent one is Stephen King, but even that was as an undergraduate. The other three were stuff I read as like a, a teenager. One of them is a, two of them actually are mostly known for being like YA or young adult authors. What does Anthony Horowitz do to insert himself? So he's written like, I think it's four now and going to be five. He's written these um, crime fiction novels where he is an author and he has written youth fiction, you know, young adult fiction and adult fiction, just like the real author. Um, so then he goes along with a fake detective, like researching actual crimes as they're happening so he can turn them into a book. Yeah, interesting. It's just like it took me forever to figure out, wait, how many of the characters in this book are real? And it seems like none of them, you know, it's just that one mm -hmm. of them has a whole lot of autobiographical detail in it that happens to match perfectly with the real Anthony Horowitz. Right. That it's funny because I think I only learned he had written books, you know, not for kids. I don't know when I was an adult, because my when I see Anthony Horowitz, I think of these rubbish I thought they were right at the time, but these kind of stupid James Bond-esque books for for kids called the, the Alex Ryder series. Uh, one of them mm -hmm. was made into a really bad film. That's that's how I know him. You've you've reminded me that the, the like a crime or mystery self-insert offer. I know a very I think this is obscure. It's definitely a weird one. Alfred Hitchcock has done this in novels he wrote. Um I was introduced, or my my class in primary school was introduced to these like Amer an American spin on like the famous five and the secret seven. I don't know if those, those mean anything to either of you. Have you, have you heard of those? They're Enid, Enid Blyton mystery stories. Yeah. I, I love the famous five. Uh, oh. I, 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 I had them read to me when I was, when I was uh, in, in school and I recently picked them up as bedtime reading for kids. And there, there, there are some, uh. you know, problematic parts to it, but they're, their, their their formula is very effective even though it's the same from novel to novel there's the discovery of a tunnel and uh smugglers always yes smugglers were very big in in the 1940s and, and 1950s children's literature um <laughs> but it, and don't seem to crop up anymore uh yes so yes i i do love yeah, we've done we've done brexit though yeah. and we've got rid of them thank god yet i i was given them by my mom who read them and loved them uh, when they were coming out and i think being one generation removed and maybe partly living in Scotland, I found it a bit nauseous hearing these English kids talking about how jolly it was to go to their little den at the bottom of the garden and be brought tea and cakes by their mum. That bugged me. But um, we had uh, in my in, in school, we had a, a rare thing, a male teacher in our primary school brought in these like American mirror world versions written by Alfred Hitchcock about like a group of, I think, three or four boys whose den is in a scrapyard not in a cozy suburban back garden. And they get assigned missions by someone on a phone. Uh, and the person assigning them like missions is Alfred Hitchcock inserting himself, which is so weird. Um, but it sort of makes sense because he also would appear in his own films. But yeah, I just, I had to bring that up. Yeah, so I have a few other authors who've inserted themselves here. I'll rattle through them. Stephen King famously inserted himself into his Dark Tower trilogy, which also played into this bigger metafictional thing where in his Dark... Or it's not I say trilogy, it's not a trilogy, it's a series. His Dark Tower series, 
he throws in lots of different characters and settings and uh, this and that from all of his works combined. So it's like a sort of nexus point. I can't imagine, like a Stephen King of verse. I don't imagine Moyen's done that. But that said, he does set a lot of his stories around Gaomi County, where he's from. So there's a bit of a parallel there. Um, Lemony Snicket is a pen name of an author. The character Lemony Snicket features, inserts himself in the story. The author doesn't. I don't think that's got much bearing on, on Moyan. Although maybe the idea that the fictional Moyan is not necessarily the real one is kind of implied. Alistair Gray doesn't insert himself, but uh, or he does insert the author, but the author may or may not be God. The lines are blurred. That's definitely not what Moyan's doing. And Marcus Zusak, uh, I won't spoil which of his books because it's a spoiler, but in one of his books, he does something similar where the author appears at the end and reveals he's been pulling the strings, which is like the opposite of Moyan in this book. He's not pulling the strings at all. He's just as useless and powerless as our detective. So that's that's my five that I was able to rattle off. Um, I don't know if that reveals a lot about about this book, but I, I think it is an interesting thing to explore. And I'd be interested if there are notable big or big name female authors that have done this, or if this is just the male ego that can't help itself. I would imagine it's it's uh, it's all over the place. But don't know. I just read a book called The Samurai by by a by a French literary theorist called Julia Kristeva, and it's sort of it's sort of the account oh, yeah. of her her time in Paris in the 1960s, and she ins, inserts herself as a character named Olga, and it's quite a um, a self-aggrandizing portrait of of this of this character, this this inserted. Uh, character who who immediately we 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 know to be to be her but but much more beautiful and and much more uh, <laughs> always coming up with a, a witty remark at the perfect time yeah I've heard of her I had a, f a friend an American friend in Shanghai who was um he was obsessed with the abject which I think is a theory that she brought out a uh, brought out formulated in her academic career so it's like bodily fluids the color white reminds you of the horridness of the body or something so that's that's where i've encountered her but um yeah interesting that she shamelessly or proudly inserts herself in a in a flattering way because i think moyan basically does the opposite yeah. although when lee though is complimenting him for being a great mm -hmm. author fictional moyan is always sort of what's the word um downplaying it Acting humble, so real Moyan is maybe complimenting himself by presenting himself as a humble guy who who lets other people do the talking in terms of how awesome he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So fictional Moyan isn't um, re retains his literary clout that real Moyan has, but I wonder if that's being used um, to further the, like the theme of corruption, because when Moyan is brought into liquor liquor land. He's brought in as like a big celeb who has to be wined and dined and treated. And then like that's that's what he fails he fails to deal with, um, especially the alcohol. But also um as soon as he sees what is it, the the mayor, as soon as he sees a woman, um, he like hilariously just collapses. <laughs> well, I think it's hilarious. So that kind of leads to the next note I've got likable or unlikable characters. Because it's maybe up to us to decide if we think 
the author himself in his self insert is likable. But did 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 any of you particularly like the the detective, or did we think he was disgusting? Um, not only disgusting, but just so darn annoying with his <laughs> um double standards. Like, you know, oh, it's fine for me to have a mistress, but if mm. this uh, lady trucker, whose name I can't even try to remember, has some other love affairs, then it's going to be a terrible thing. And it's so, so bad. It's going to just completely ruin my life. Or I can have an affair with your wife, Diamond Jean, but you eating children, that's actually like terrible. It's like, oh, okay. So for whatever reason, you get the moral high ground. <laughs> Even though you're doing so many, like, I don't know how to describe them, awful things all the time. Yeah, he drove me nuts. I was so hoping he was going to die. I, like, wrote in my own notes, kill him off, kill him off. (laughs) Well, last we see him, he's sinking into a, a, what would you even call it? A pit of excrement. Cesspool. (laughs) Yep. probably not getting out of that one if he's ingesting too much of it yeah it just came too late though angus <laughs> no, not enough punishment mm-hmm. i i got the sense that pretty much because like right from the jump he's hitching a lift to, to liquor land and he's immediately embarking on a very weird sexual encounter with this female truck driver and i think we learn also in that first incident that he's got a wife or whatever back home and I, I've read quite a lot of this literary Chinese stuff. I've I've lived in China, and I I don't know. I feel like it's the the as far as adultery goes. There, it feels like a bit of a hangover of like the concubine mistress taking culture, where like like you said, it's this hypocrisy where men, especially the more money and power you have, you take as many mistresses as you can get, and it's gendered because the reverse the reverse isn't true. Yeah. So yeah, if you find it um, irksome, then it's going to probably be irksome for the whole book. But I, I did think, yeah, it was treated more lightly than all the other misdemeanors because it just felt like it was it was taken as a given mm-hmm. from from page one that this is what these sleazy guys are going to do. But they won't they themselves won't consider it to be especially sleazy. As as for likable, I mean, it seems everybody there. I think you'd struggle to find anybody likable except for perhaps the. Uh... The lady driver, who who I think never gets a name. In fact, I think, I think that's um, she's really the only sort of um, sort of. I don't even know if she's uh, redeemable in any sense, but she's she, you know, is is not as terrible as as everyone else. <laughs> everyone else is terrible. The corrupt cadres and the yeah. um, Lido seems to be a bit of a of a blowhard and a flatterer mm-hmm. and, and Moyen himself is uh I mean we've sort of covered his his likability. He's uh he is kind of pompous and and silly and um doesn't seem to take his his literary work seriously or his work as a as an investigative journalist or whatever he's he's doing at the end arriving in Liquorland. And um, and everybody else on the way is either a, a murderer or a criminal or a, a trafficker of women and and children. There's yeah. uh, and there's literally a demon. There's a demon as well. Right, right. I don't know if anybody is likable, save the lady trucker who at least does some cool stuff, pulls some guns on on people, and and looks kind of cool. 
I was kind of cheering on the demon at a certain point where he's <laughs> he's masquerading as a baby and he leads a baby or attempts to lead a baby revolution in the nursery to he's, well it seems like he's trying to help them all avoid being eaten by the cannibalistic elites but in fact what is it he's just angry or he's just out for himself so he manages to save himself but not the other babies but yeah it's it, it, in case listeners haven't realized it's quite a strange surreal book this isn't we end doing literary realism or even like something that's recognizably magical realism. I felt I, I was looking through Goodreads reviews and um, someone compared it to the castle by Franz Kafka. I don't know if this actually came up in our part two interview. It might've, but okay. Interesting. Um, in Dylan was shaking his head there. So in, in the castle um, it's Kafka's last novel. It's unfinished and it's about a land surveyor who's sent to a town and he's got to try and get to the castle for, I don't know, a meeting with an authority, the authorities about surveying the land. And he's complete, he's he's stuck in the town. He never actually reaches the castle. The castle stands for some unreach unreachable thing that you're always denied access to. And he just gets caught up in various sordid uh, incidents instead. Mm. And that's similar to this one, in, in in at least in the sense that we're in a weird town and our guy gets to the sort of inner chambers to meet the leaders once they get him really drunk. And from then on, he's just spiraling. Um, he's, he's getting nowhere. <clears throat> if you, if to, to some extent, I, I think the Kafka comparison is, is interesting because in, in this period, Moyen is writing some really weird books. There's the one either right before it or two before it is called 13 steps. And it's about a man who's who's locked in a in a in a in sort of a, a cage. So it's it's almost like another Kafka story. The the um, what is it called the hunger artist, um, mm. and and this man in the cage is sort of the narrator who's telling all these stories of of other people in in various forms of of human bondage for the entertainment of people who are who are wandering by these are really grotesque and terrible stories and and as payment he's he's fed soil for uh payment for telling these stories he's he's described as a madman but of course we start to wonder who is really mad and and that kind of thing so it, it moyen was was um was really on something at the at this in this time in the in the late 1980s and this this book is kind of the the crazy expression of all that madness before he kind of became a little bit more conventional mm. in part two listeners you're going to hear us talk about being on something because dylan brings up how like a lot of the big well we like to think but how, to what extent it's true is up for debate that a lot of big advances in literature arts music and so on, especially in the 20th century, but maybe before, come from drugs. But um, there's more or less an absence of that in China. And the thing that people can be on easily is is booze. But I'll push that to the side. That'll be coming up later later in the conversation, in part two, the drunken conversation. I wanted to ask, so if there's no one we like, who do we love to hate? Because mm. I think for me, it was the demon mm -hmm. at times. There's also a bit where he shows up in our detective story and like steals his clothes and sets fire to his room just for no reason. Yep. That was funny. <laughs> um, um, and I like that we have like something out of 
I think maybe I mentioned Lemony Snicket in part uh, part two as well, but some kind of very surreal incident where we meet the party boss and the boss of the mine because Liquorland has a mine and they're like the same guy and everything they do is mirrored and they're very ingratiating and friendly and they're both kind of uh, bulbous, I guess. I was imagining guys with the Jiang Zemin beer belly and the trousers up to their nipples, that kind of style. <laughs> um, I like them, although they only appeared once, I think. Um, but Michelle, is there anyone you love to hate? I'm guessing you didn't love to hate the detective. Sounds like you just hated him. This is interesting. It's an interesting way of kind of approaching the book. Um, gosh. There were parts where one pipe Lee made me laugh. There were some things that he said that I could not stand. So I did not love to hate him throughout the whole book. But there were parts where it's just like, dude, is your head screwed on right in a way that just <laughs> made me laugh, I guess? Um mm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Some very contorted logic in in his in his writings. Oh my god, his short stories were so crap. <laughs> but yeah, it's I think that's um like looking at it through this absurdist lens or having the background of reading someone like Kafka really kind of improves your understanding of how the book works and how the book shouldn't necessarily follow any beats. It's it's not going to work like that if it's absurdist. The whole land is completely illogical. Yeah, or if you imagine it as like a hell or something, that works pretty well mm. to some kind yeah. of underworld afterlife type thing. Um, Michelle, you had a note about our, our, our lady truck driver. So I, I only read this thing in English, mm -hmm. did not really refer to the Chinese at all. And it really did strike me that this name was very clunky. Lady Truck Driver. I think it's Lady Trucker, actually. I didn't fix it. Lady Trucker, pardon me. That's okay. <laughs> Still quite clunky. Yeah. No, I, I found that to be probably the most annoying thing about the book. When you have a female character who's fairly central and doesn't get named, that uh, sets me off, I guess. In part two, we were lamenting that there's not like a female form of trucker, because at least that would have got rid of the word lady. Oh, truckeress. But, <laughs> trucker truckeress doesn't sound good either. <laughs> no. <laughs> You got in the notes something like Miss Alkaline or Mickey. Is that drawn from yeah. the Chinese? So at one point, like really early on, she says something about her childbearing abilities. And investigator Ding says that's because you don't have enough alkaline. I can fix that for you. And that's how yeah. like they left their first encounter. It was terrible. Um, and then somewhere in the middle of the book, she's like, you've never even asked me your name. And I'm like, thank you. And she just says, from now on, you're Hunter, and I'm Mickey. And then that name doesn't oh, get used for the rest of the book. It just dis disappears again. So I don't know if that's referencing some other cultural work. Please fill me in if you know. But it goes away no again, idea. right? It's just like, okay, so she doesn't have a name. Lady Trucker is the closest she has to a name. That, that reminds me of, there's a Sancho story in that I covered on the show in that book, I Live in the Slums, where we're, we're in this like yeah. weird hell world mm -hmm. and we're following, is it like, I forget, is it, the main character is this like rat-like creature. Mm -hmm. I forget if he meets another rat-like creature or if it's a little boy, but like in this weird hell world, there's a character called Ricky. Oh. So like, I think every, everyone's like the the rooster or the old man or maybe a Chinese name. And then there's just, hi, I'm Ricky. I'm a <laughs> small child. So I don't know. I don't, it's not always clear to me what would lead an author to pick an English or not Chinese name like that, or if they've just thrown in some characters, as in Hansa, Chinese characters, 
and then the translator has to assign a name to it. Yeah. It's a mystery to me. It is a mystery to me too. I would love to know, but it would take forever to kind of piece by piece figure out what the original was and how that was handled. And you might not want to know. It might be like, <laughs> well, yeah. it's Mickey Mouse because Mickey Mouse is funny mm. or something. Yeah. There might be no reason. True. Dylan, was there anyone you loved to hate? Well, you said his short stories were, were no good, but I did quite like uh, the letters, at least, of Lee, though, and his uh, his uh, sort of disgusting flattery of, of Moyen <laughs> is, quite, is quite funny. Um, he is sort of a, a wretched, terrible person, like everyone else in the novel. There is nobody like him. But uh, I, did, I did enjoy his short stories. And uh, I don't know, it's kind of funny that, that he's writing these short stories that, that sort of, in a sense, mimic the novel that they're contained within. I think that's an interesting aspect of it. And uh, yeah, I, I, he comes the closest. Of course, I like the, as I said, I like the lady trucker. I like when she's pulling guns on people and whatnot. Mm. And she's uh, adds a little sort of brightness to it, but that's about it. I wonder if Moyan has had to deal with real life Liido's, I would guess probably at least one. Surely, without a doubt, yeah, he he must have based those on on uh, all those letters from people asking, uh, "How do I become a, a writer? How do I become a writer?" I was a bit of a Liido one time <laughs> in my undergraduate uh, years. I one of our lecturers for the creative writing workshop I was in was off sick and got replaced by an actual published author. I think the the. The lecturer who was ill did have like a book of poetry or something out quite literary and highbrow, but she was replaced by a guy who'd managed to write, you know, very genre fiction style commercial fantasy novel, self-publish it, rack up enough sales to get taken by a traditional publisher. And he said um, early on in the class, at the, when I'm when I'm finished, when I finish this module and I go away, I'll pick two of you and I'll mentor you. <gasps> and I was like, wow, finally, my this is how you make it big. Um, and I was one of the two people he picked um, because I actually wrote a half-decent story every time we were asked to. That was all it took, really. And he did. He said, like, if you write something, I'll look at it and give you feedback. So I had to go, because it was this guy, I had to go at writing a, a fantasy novel's first chapter. Mm -hmm. But I never put any any magic into it. I thought it would be materialist medieval European fantasy or something where everything is rational. And he asked me, like, what genre is this? And I did exactly what Lee Yido did. I just made up genre titles. I just mashed words together. <laughs> Lee Yido is trying to invent demonic realism. And the guy's like, what are you talking about? And I think I sent him, like, this one chapter one a couple of times, chapter two another time. He gave some feedback. And then finally he said, look, I need to focus on my relationship with my wife. So good luck. And that was that. <laughs> <laughs> so I have I have been Lido. I wonder if Lido was also twenty years old, or if he's supposed to be like forty or something. I'm guessing he's supposed to be younger than Moyen. If he's not yeah, younger, he's, I think he's doing a PhD at this time. Right. But yeah. I, right. I I I've been Lido too in the in the in the world of translation. Like when I first started, and I mean the the translator of this book, Mr. Howard Goldblatt. I I he was. Uh, one of the people who I sent a, a long note to in closing my work that I had translated and asking him for his guidance and, and telling him how much I admired him. It really, every translator, many who, who you've interviewed on this program and, and many who you 
well, Howard Goldblatt is the, I guess you're a great white whale, but, but yeah. all of those people many times, maybe 10 years ago, I, I sent them letters and then things worked out better than they, than they, for me, than they did for Lee though. And I would often meet these people and, and have to, uh, I would often, I would always bring up, uh, um, Nikki Harmon. Do you remember when I sent you this letter in, in 2006, let's read it together and, and relive my, my embarrassment <laughs> as a way to exercise that that mm. from my uh, soul. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. I've been there. And maybe that's the point of those letters just to realize that maybe we've all been there or, you know, it's so hard to get ahead in certain industries that you do feel like you have to bow and scrape to somebody. And if you're lucky, you find some way to get forward. It might not even be through that bowing and scraping, but if you're unlucky, you try your lead oh luck and it doesn't even work out afterwards. Although I feel like Lido is committing an additional sin where his career is in alcohol <laughs> and he tries to like narcissistically bring that into the literature. Whereas at least I wasn't trying to drag it while I was a student. But I don't know, let's say I worked in mechanical engineering mm -hmm. and I said to this guy, well, I'm going to write the first mechanical engineering um, fantasy novel. Right. Or so, I don't know. It's just that extra degree of, uh, of crazy. This kind of leads us nicely to the next point in my little set of notes about schmoozing i think because i think in part two we don't we didn't maybe didn't really really dig into schmoozing um because we we have a, a portion of the novel it's all it's all built around one guy flattering another but like constantly people are trying to ingratiate themselves in one way or another often greasing the wheels with um with booze or trying to implicate one another with with crimes i don't know if i have any particularly deep thoughts other than that kind of the in with the schmoozing is privileged moyen's got a privileged position as an author in the novel the detective is maybe he's an interesting figure because mm -hmm. he's got the authority of the state behind him so he has to be sort of massaged by people he's investigating but he's like the one guy that i suppose doesn't try to schmooze but it, it turns out the worst for him because, I don't know, he doesn't have that tool of putting people at ease and plying them with food and booze. So this isn't really going anywhere. Um, I could talk at length about like schmoozing I experienced firsthand working as a teacher in China, but I'll, I'll just throw this one out there. That's actually the question I had for both of you. So I know we've all mm. lived in China for some period or another, but I feel like as a woman, I didn't necessarily get schmoozed as much or wasn't required to drink alcohol to make things happen. Whereas, right. you know, I was told by many different people, well, th some jobs you might be able to not drink every single, you know, for every single important meeting. But most jobs, if you're in China and you want to get something done, you have to get very drunk. So I'm curious if, you know, what your experience was with that. Uh, yeah, I could talk a bit. As a, as a teacher, I definitely saw at the teacher's meals we'd go to where they'd take the foreigners. Well, the first job I was in, there was like me, one other foreigner, who I think tended to skip the meals, mm -hmm. then the Chinese, like the local staff. And I was asked, like the bosses or the different teachers would, would cheers me to see if the foreigner could take his baijiu. But I guess I was such a token foreign teacher figure. No one was really trying to get anything out of me. No one was asking me to like host their classes or anything. They didn't need a huge favor out of you, right? Yeah. 
yeah um and i could see that like the ladies were being given a, a pass um yeah. they didn't get cheers as much there was always coconut milk or water or fruit juice maybe if they didn't want to drink the booze but yeah there was definitely that not maybe schmoozing i couldn't tell because i couldn't follow the conversation uh bet- between the the male teachers and then at shanghai high school international division unfortunately um there was a lot of foreign teachers not unfortunately there was lots of foreign <laughs> teachers but there was a lot of foreign teachers and a lot of local teachers and unfortunately we were segregated quite a lot so we were actually not participating in that like toasting uh, culture but i think schmoozing came in other forms like one time i was asked to sub this was i don't know how, how much it links with anything like especially dodgy in this book but i was asked by the head of hr if I would substitute teach in a totally different school that was, so Shanghai High School was a state school. We were in the international division. So the international, it's like a sort of quasi international school that was attached to a prestigious state school. Uh, And there was like a clone of the international division set up elsewhere in the city by a former principal teacher uh, called Mr. Tang, Tang Laoshu. And I was asked by HR if I would substitute in Star River, which was very questionable from like a contract perspective. Uh, but I was basically the the I guess the deal was I would get free accommodation there. So I actually had two apartments in Shanghai with no rent for a while. And I was told I would do it for X amount of time, then go back to normal. And when it came time to go back, they asked me to extend the contract, or there wasn't a contract. They asked me just basically to stay or to transfer. And I never did. And it, I didn't get schmoozed at all, actually. I was just got, I stayed on the line with the HR lady forever, where she didn't seem to want to take no for an answer. <laughs> and I think they actually, they did try and offer me, like, they said, oh, well, if you, if it's that you don't want to live in blah, blah, what was it? Minhang district, we'll give you a free bus to this, to the school every morning or something. So I, yeah, it's not schmoozing, but like this weird sort of, favor where it was more about favors and face to prop up this dubious for-profit spin-off of a state school um there's some something vaguely reminiscent of like the mixture of personal interests and i don't know i'm it's not really very well connected but that was like the weirdest (laughs) yeah one of the weirder experiences i had that involved like doing favors with dubious um wealthy figures i met prof- uh, professor i met mr tang on the lift one time um and i asked him how long he'd been working at the school and he's like i'm the owner who are you <laughs> uh but yeah that was a bad example dylan what's the most schmoozing you've done or received mm, i've done <clears throat> i've done a lot i've done a lot of i've done a lot of schmoozing over the years with um like most recently it's been on well in going over for like um book fairs and and you know especially with with um with Japinwa a lot of mm. trips to Xi'an and and Japinwa is a, is a man famous for for his for his carnal appetites um for sex and for alcohol and for cigarettes but not for meat that's 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 the quite interesting thing about him he's he's a quite a strict vegetarian wow. but um the interesting thing is on those 
on those kind of schmoozing junkets where you're you're invited out to, to banquet the the sort of base level of of alcohol consumption is so is so ridiculous on the surface like the the style of drinking to eat to even keep up at a at a basic level involves getting absolutely smashed because these are these are people in the publishing industry they're often writers writers are the the hardest drinkers no matter what country you are and and the chinese are especially in the in these authors because they're always being schmoozed they're always being invited out by such and such a person who runs a real estate company who wants to get a, <laughs> a, a thing of calligraphy from him. So he invites him out right. to a big dinner and gets him smashed and then sends over a couple bottles of Mao Tai uh, as a gift. So like Jia Pinghua is, is almost like on a constant circuit, like every night of the week, he's being invited and being feted by various um, local business people and is just drinking nonstop, just powering through bottles every night bottles of of this um very strong <laughs> like 65 percent alcohol stuff Oof. and uh it is very strange to do business in the haze of those sort of banquets um there are a lot of promises made that are that are never kept there's a lot of big talk um i was i was taken out by by a, a woman who heads a um a state-run publisher. She took me out for for a dinner with with one of her authors, um, a man in his in his fifties, and she was perhaps so impressed by my matching him drink for drink that that both she and the and the author promised me the moon. There, they said we're going to ensure that any book that's published in in any language will come from your English edition. Uh, your English uh, translation and and you know things beyond that promises of money and and fame and uh, <laughs> limousines and and after that night I never heard a, another word from them it was all it was all <laughs> lost in the haze. Wow. Yeah, I think I think I do have maybe similar recollection of uh, recollections of things like that maybe the reason i don't remember them is is nothing came of them i think as well as a when you're like the the foreign english teacher especially in small town china the the thing to be like sold and and brandished is yourself so i don't know perhaps te the, the the teachers were using me to get get the credit for their school rather than trying to like sign me up for their for their crazy deals but, right yeah. they didn't want you they didn't want their 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 star to be falling down drunk at the at the banquet table perhaps yeah although it didn't stop me <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you say that like the gendered thing is so crucial because on many of these junkets or a couple of them i i was with um nikki nikki Harmon, and yeah. she was um to to basically exempt from any of this, any of this wild power drinking and, and passing out of cigarettes. She's she's an she's an elegant woman, and and knows how to handle herself very well in these in these situations. And and the way she navigated them was was simply masterful. But there is also a a gendered aspect of that. And quite often, while these powerful people were out meeting 
all of the young women who actually staff these publishing companies and and are on the staff of the of these writers um are are completely excluded they're they're back at the hotel or or wherever they're staying and uh having their own little party with 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 wine coolers or 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 uh, canned cocktails um mm. within and when you ever get a chance to to partake to be invited to those greet uh, those gatherings they're they're much more fun because there's no pressure there's none of that masculine um there's no you know there's no shots of testosterone alongside the shots of baijiu they're they're mm. much more relaxed and pleasant yeah i had nice low pressure evenings in ktv rooms where yeah there isn't even an obligation to to sing well maybe maybe that's a, a glimmer of, of what you're getting at you mentioned that all the best writers or most writers writers are the hardest drinkers and i was reminded stephen king came up earlier and he's got thoughts on that being a recovered alcoholic uh, and alcoholism features a lot in, a lot in his books but it's i guess it's more personal it's not like this abstracted metaphor for corruption like in republic of wine I know I, I was just searching for the exact lines. I couldn't find them, but in his um, in his book on writing, he has a has a pop at this idea that writers are all are all drinkers, or the best writers are are, are drinkers, or whatever. And we I know we were going to be talking about this in the part two, um, where I think I I said something like I don't even agree with the dictum of write drunk, edit sober, because I can't write at all if yeah. I'm even a bit tipsy. Um, but yes, S Stephen King said something like the idea that like the he he artic he says the idea is that as a writer like you suffer or you're so creative that you need alcohol to sort of get you on the level of the ordinary people or it opens up your am amazing artistic powers and I think and I'm maybe I'm misremembering I think that's more or less what he says and he says basically it's it's just a myth it's an excuse the the reality is you wanted a drink although possibly he concedes creative people are a little bit more vulnerable vulnerable to it but i think it, it's an interesting thing like to what extent is it a myth that a writer or someone with artistic ambitions is gonna have some like inherent link to alcohol or other substances like is it that they're more unstable i my feeling is maybe they're just a bit more lonely from from because they're I think, I mean, it's generalizing. I think there's certainly creative people that do fit in perfectly fine with society, but maybe it's just that you're on average someone who's got pursued the creative path or has those ambitions might have more fun exploring them in their own head, inebriated than, you know, fitting in with everyday society. But it could equally be a sort of self self-justifying myth Again, I don't really know how that connects with Republic of Wine. Well, I mean that that myth is is kind of um, kind of like sort of feeds into that. You know that that's you know I I just parroted that myth that that, that uh, well um, perhaps we both parroted the myth that well mm. you you don't believe in it, but I, I I guess I do to some extent. I'm I'm ambivalent. I just know it for me. It it's an excuse, but that doesn't mean it's not true. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's my excuse too. But uh, I, I think in the, when you talk about Chinese writers, there's there's even um, a, a a great connection between like drinking and masculinity, and and a and a mm. real man should should be able to do that. And there is 
um, I, I think that's often what what writers like Jia Pinghua and Mo Yan and 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 that generation are are doing is sort sort of asserting some masculinity against this sort of softer image they might have there as writers. There, I mean that that also exists. You know, boozy writers in in the United States. You know, you know Carver or Norman Mailer, mm-hmm. those 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 crazy drunks. Uh, drunk men whose masculinity was tied to their alcohol consumption, but I think in China it's even more powerful, and and it is it does connect back to the novel. You know these sort of um, images of the of the of the ideal masculine figure mm-hmm. in in the book as well are are kind of tied to masculinity, and and drinking a lot is very tied to masculinity, both you know in real life and in and in the world of the novel where these corrupt mm-hmm. cadres are asserting themselves through their uh, immense uh, consumption of alcohol. Yeah, di- different authors have their own aesthetic attachments to different kinds of alcohol. So, so maybe for some it's you know liquor that burns, maybe for some who are more, the, their aesthetic is more earthy uh, or working man, it's, it's beer or a Guinness or something. Um, and then maybe for others it's like decadent Victorians, it's um, oh man, ab- absinthe or something, maybe like a pole. Uh, it's it's absinthe. There's one author, a female author I've read, who it's all well, it's partly about her alcoholism. It's a book I read in China. I was I was given it in a pile actually. It's kind, of, I really didn't like her. She came across really unlikable, which was made me feel terrible because. It's about a book about her alcoholism and also a condition she had. I forget the name, but it's where you're blind, not because your eyes stop working, but because you can't open your eyelids. There's a name for that condition. Really strange. The book's called uh, the book's called What to Look for in Winter: A Memoir in Blindness by Candia McWilliam. And the depictions of alcoholism alcoholism in that were interesting because they're not really attached to her literary or artistic merits at all. She writes. She just it's an autobiography or it's it's a memoir. It says in the title. Um, it's really abject to bring back a word where like she doesn't really talk about what she drinks I think it's whatever is to hand and there's points in her alcoholism where it's so bad she's drinking like is it cleaning chemicals or something it's (gasps) something with some alcohol content white spirit I don't know just absolute nightmare material Um, and it's an interesting contrast from like stuff I might quite enjoy like uh Mr. Fear and Loving in Las Vegas, man. What's he called? Go- Hunter Thompson. Hun- Hun- yeah, Hunter S. Thompson uh, writing about getting absolutely smashed or something. Or or the Slickerland book where the scenes of guys being plied with Baggio shots is... It's kind of amusing and it makes a sort of aesthetic sense. Whereas a depressed, mm-hmm. privileged woman throwing all her good luck away by getting trashed every night and losing all her friends ruining her life i don't know it's just interesting one one has an aesthetic and one is the bare like horrible thing to its logical conclusion it's it's interesting um right okay enough enough of the depressing stuff there's a, a note here we're really just flying all over the place but i know michelle you wanted to flag another choice by howard goldblatt why he was referring to renminbi as like literally translating it to people's currency I'd forgotten he did that, but now you mention it, yeah. So whenever 
money comes up, it's called people's currency or the people's currency. Do you do you do you have any idea why you did that, Michelle, or any thought, or did you like it? Did you not I mean, like it? I I don't want to trash Howard Goldblatt too bad. I've read three books that he's translated, two of which I didn't like, but one that I like very very much. And so I went back to the infallible Wikipedia to see, like, was this maybe the first book he translated? No, it's more like right in the middle of his career. He did do three that were apparently published in 2000. So I wonder if this was maybe hustled along a little bit. Um, So what I find is that there's just a couple of spots where I would have handled it differently. And is that really enough to say this was translated badly just because I would have handled it differently? You know what I'm saying? It just grated on me sometimes. Sometimes I found something to be maybe a little bit too American sounding, or I found it to be like iron and steel are practically the same thing. And there's no reason to have prosody in like doubles Mm. in English. We do that in Chinese. We don't have to do that in English. So that's just little things like that where I was like, why? Why? And I, I don't know. I would love to see what Dylan thinks. Like, do you ever get yourself a first reader, even if that's just a friend or if they're just looking at part of a book or is it, yep, this is my responsibility. I am a lonely translator and I give this to the publisher and they do with it what they will. Mm, wow. Um, I didn't even notice he used uh, people's currency. So um, I, I, I think it was a, it probably, I, I can't speak for him, but I guess it was probably an artistic choice to give sort of a contribute to the mood of, you know, that, that he's, that this investigator sort of up against this oppressive state and to sort of keep that weird communist language inside. I don't know. It's really weird because he, I don't recall, I don't recall anyone ever translating in his people's currency except, you know, some, you know, 1980s news article about about China. It's bizarre. Mm. You know, I have some other issues with 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 Howard Goldblatt's translations, uh, with and, and even this one in particular, his his sort of unwillingness to get to really get dirty, or his sort of <laughs> his sort of like 1950s malt shop context that yes. he comes from. Yeah. Um, you know. He's like he's older than Moyen. He's he's kind of uh, he's from he sort of speaks a language that that isn't really modern anymore. So it's really weird to read in in, in like a translate in a book published in in like the last twenty years. Somebody used the word derriere, or or refer yeah. to a woman's uh, breasts as mounts or something like that. Um, yeah. On on the second thing, I I you know I'm so shy to show what I do to anyone. It, I I I with with when I translate something, I'll I'll read it to myself and hope for the best, because I would I would be so scared to show it to anybody who I respect enough to give me an opinion, and I I just send it to the editors and and I tell myself this is going to be the time that they are going to 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 turn it back to me and tell me that I've that I've um, you know cocked it up and. They're going to have a complete redo. So yeah, that's that's my that's my situation there. It's just interesting the different workflows, you know. Like we have a lot of translators that come into the profession without really any training, without learning from a mentor necessarily, and just kind of faking it or, you know, just working out how it should sound completely on their own. And 
we have some translators who might read very widely and read in translation widely. So they're like being sponges. They're learning by example, by, you know, maybe you even read and take notes of what other people are doing. And then we have people like me who are maybe more straight laced, but, you know, <laughs> master's program translation and interpreting graduate who um, sometimes it's, I, I just get surprised. I'm like, but why? Why would that possibly be better when it's so much longer? But that's like a Marlon James approach. You know, he's like, don't say the horse ran quickly when you can say it galloped. There's just no reason. Yeah, yeah it's been really it's been really weird um, because I am I am an, an, an unlettered um buffoon sort of stumbling into into the party sort of by hook and crook by my own uh maneuvering and schmoozing <laughs> making some something like a career for myself and it's very strange to come up against uh you know when you <clears throat> have these ideas in your head about how how it should look and you and you realize that that there is something called translation theory and that people have written these massive books about it and there is actually um a good discussion to be had about about the purposes of of many of like Howard Goldblatt's choices here and that people's currency and there is um you know many dissertations and term papers to be to be written on just that topic <laughs> and and uh, I feel so embarrassed saying to you and and to all these people listening you know I have no idea maybe maybe it's it's some communist thing or or something or other um, you know, Howard Goldblatt's interesting because he his path into translation is 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 kind of interesting yeah. too. Like he just learned Chinese um, for the military, uh, and and somehow sort of stumbled his way. I think uh, not not in quite the same into way. A doctorate. Yeah, exactly. Still though, yeah. yeah. And he's but you know become the the um, the boss of all bosses of the of the thing until he's dead. Uh, I'm, <laughs> for real it's true yes though. and and will never be touched and uh and it's kind of interesting to just think about his workflow and and the fact is he is sort of um somebody who you can't really get a hold of and and he hasn't really written in in quite a long time about about his own work as a translator yeah. so we're sort of left guessing and and with with howard goldblatt there's the um Another factor is that that his his wife is all often working closely with him. I think in a lot of discussions of Howard Goldblatt, we we sort of um, uh, shortchanged uh, Sylvia Lin, and mm -hmm. and I think I don't I don't think she worked on this book unless I'm wrong, but I I think she she's not credited right, <laughs> but I guarantee she was by his side as he worked on it. Um, that's why all male translators of Chinese fiction are married to Chinese women. My, myself excluded, <laughs> but all the other ones are, um, just for that that free labor, or in her case, often credited labor, and Supporting. it's it's sort of a a thing that's impossible in a sense to know about, because neither has really revealed what's going on with their with their work. But that's yeah, Howard Goldblatt is a fascinating figure. In closing, yeah, there could be a, a paper that's a purely statistical spouse study for translators. That that would be interesting. I, to answer your question, Michelle, um, I think his choices are both about vibes. I think a strength of Howard Goldblatt is that he's got some writerly, I don't know, ambitions. I don't think he writes his own fiction, but I think stuff I've read by him often reads very nicely, like 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 I'm reading stuff that is written rather than just translated. I think the people's currency choice is a bit odd. 
Um, but if you think about like the focus on the state, the party, and also the communist legacy in the book, um, it makes sort of makes sense. And by communist legacy, I mean it's set in it's very much like a reform and opening era book in that it's about blooming corruption and private enterprise intermingling with the older party system. But a lot of the the sort of Mao era imperatives are there, like the cop going into root out corruption and um arguments to like drink more liquor because it helps build up the nation's industries, stuff like that. So there's I think people's yeah. currency builds on that uh vibe in the book. And then I think why say iron and steel? Why when you could just say iron or metal? Because it's iron and steel, you know, it's um it's like this <laughs> authoritarian symbol of militaristic power just saying metal i don't know it's it adds an extra dimension i think that's what it is so i the people's currency one does make me raise an eyebrow um but maybe that's because i know that's come from the name renminbi which i know because i i used to be paid in renminbi but the iron and steel strikes me as a literary effect that maybe he's preserving rather than like padding out word count to get get paid more yeah, no, I think um, it's just interesting. That's that's how translation gets interesting, is how people's brains work so differently and they can present a text in such a different way. Um, speaking of word count, I was thinking it could be good to have a look at the final chapter, the stream of consciousness chapter. Oh, yeah. I stupidly did not have the ebook uh, open ready for, so I'm just going to open it now. Republic. Republic, Republic of Wine. And it looks like I don't have my e-reader installed because I recently reset my computer. That's great. Okay. Go on. Um, well, I don't have it, so I can't read any of the final chapter. Um, actually, you know what? It's online. I can just, I can do some um, illegal. I'm happy to read it if you want. Yeah. Is there a, a, a any bit of it that jumps out of you to like to read a segment of? Uh, sure. Golden juice is nice and sticky like honey that doesn't drip. Get on the phone and have the municipal hospital send an ambulance. If something ha happens to him, we'll be in hot water. The ambulance lights red as blood. Like the eyes of a wolf are getting closer. This is a big case, an important case, an unsettled case. Lawyers and journalists will stand shoulder to shoulder. Dinko R, Dinko R, you disappointing son of a bitch. A shortage of grain beat back the rightist reversal movement. Oppose bourgeois liberalization. Lots and lots of three-legged, red-backed frogs showing up in ponds. The first human sperm bank. Uh, Kurosawa's new movie, Akira Kurosawa's Dreams. Peach blossoms everywhere. And on and on. That's just like Mental. two pages of it. What do you make of it? <laughs> it reminded me of um, Sheng Keiyi. Mm. I feel like the last part of some of her books, just like the main character kind of falls apart in front of the reader. But yeah, I, it's almost like a, a, the musical equivalent of an outro is like, it's not really giving you full closure. It's just kind of like, well, are you going to keep listening to the very last second or well, anyways, here's a few more words. Here's a few more words. I don't know. Like, it's, it's not as satisfying as a proper ending in my opinion. Mm. In the, Part two, you'll hear me waffling on about how I've come across a few maybe more experimental or slightly literary novels 
that do this where they sort of blow things up at the end and my feeling is it's a maybe it's a cynical take but if you're looking for a place to blow things up and or you're if sorry pardon <laughs> me if you're looking for a place to be very experimental but still have a story then the place to blow if if you blow everything up then you can be experimental because you are not bound by like the imperatives to have use proper sentences or describe a real scenario in 3d fictional space and the sort of logical place to blow it up is the end because you can have a climax but also you don't have to sustain yourself because if the end is imminent you can go absolutely crazy i'm trying to think of an example like if you're a teacher teaching a class your last three minutes can be the bit where you take it easy and play hangman throw stuff play hangman or (laughs) something and really in the english brain english teacher brain is obviously reactivating but yeah like it i think a lot of maybe not a lot but it seems to be a thing i've encountered before where when a writer has these mad ambitions they can really if they don't want to really go all in and write some really avant-garde stuff then at least in the final chapter they can have it blow up and one way to do it is by having sort of language breakdown yeah, there's an example. Listeners will hear me hear me citing in part two a novel from Singapore called Breaking the Tongue, and the tongue literally and metaphorically breaks at the end of the book, and language breaks down. So I wondered if it was that, and maybe another thought is there's some stuff, uh, some cens- censored topics that he or politically sensitive topics that come up in that chapter that don't come up elsewhere in the book, at least not directly. And maybe throwing them into a river of other words is a way to potentially get them in more easily. Although as I'll say this in part two as well, but I've, so I've read anyway, uh, that this chapter is not included in mainland copies of the book, or at least initially that he got it published in Taiwan first with that chapter on the end. Mm -hmm. And then the mainland edition didn't have it. And, as far as the consistency of the plot is concerned, it's not really affected if you chop that chapter off. The book still makes sense, so to speak. Dylan, did you have any thoughts on like what he's trying to do with this final chapter? Yeah, I mean, if you listen to the second part of our conversation, especially my contributions to it, when I'm becoming increasingly incoherent and belligerent <laughs> and uh, you know, grabbing at any idea that you know, flits across my mind's eye, you know, you wonder if it's sort of a, you know, an evocation of the, of the state of, of, you know, that, that alcohol leaves you in this sort of garbled uh, state where Mm. your, your own language breaks down. I, I think also, you know, this is sort of a novel of, of excess. It's a novel, um, you know, formally excessive and, and thematically excessive and, and, satirizing the excess of the era and this is sort of throwing everything together um just the most maximalist crazy stuff just bringing it to this wild crescendo at the end and then slashing a knife across the canvas at this time there's there's there are, there are other people doing this stream of consciousness thing um wang meng who who was the probably still the minister of culture at this time mm sort of made a name for himself in the 1980s using stream of consciousness to to talk about the the excess of the age um it, it, usually sort of like the um 
the excess of that that marketization brought and this new cultural fever cultural fevers that would that would sweep the the nation you know seemingly monthly and he sort of pioneered that and and made it legitimate and and in a sense moyen kind of shuts it down there's there's really nobody nobody who does that anymore i don't, I don't think I just read this great novel. This is sort of a tangent here. A great novel called uh, "The End of August." It's a Japanese novel oh, yeah. by by um, by Yu Miri, yeah. translated by Morgan Giles. Really yeah. brilliant. Probably the best uh, the best book you could read in, for, in in translation of like the last the last decade. And it it sort of plays plays around with a lot of that sort of stream of consciousness and these sort of polyphonic mixing without punctuation to a completely different effect than what than what Moyen was doing. So I, I was sort of reading it against that, that sort of restrained and beautiful, uh, to use the word again, elegant style there. And, and, and then Moyen's crazy masculine sort of spurting himself across the, uh, across the pages in that <laughs> final moment. Yeah. Spurting is the right word. Side note on your side note, I saw you, Mary, and Morgan Giles uh, at an event in Manchester, uh, just at the Blackwells on Oxford Road, and yeah, it was it was uh, it was nice. And I bought that book for my dad for his birthday because it's all about a runner, and that man, well, that man was an insane runner, and so is my dad. So I'm pleased to hear it's also one of the best books in translation of the last decade. That's a nice bonus. I thought I would um, actually. It's, Rewinding slightly before I forget, and then I will get back to the stream of consciousness chapter. I, something I meant to say about Howard Goldblatt, or a thought to ponder. I wonder if there is a Howard Goldblatt for, speaking of Japanese literature, of Japanese to English translation, because a few, several of the older translated Japanese literature novels I've read are translated by a guy called Donald Keane, who had a background in. Was it like academia or politics? But you know, also also an American and also working at this prestigious level and attached to a lot of the big authors from Japanese lit that he sort of had, so to speak, to himself. I don't know if either of you are familiar with him, but from what I've gathered, is he dead? Yeah, he died four years ago. Yeah. But I wonder if he's a, a roughly equivalent figure. And I wonder if America when it comes to East Asia anyway, has a bit of a monopoly on these guys versus other English speaking countries these days. Well, yeah. Yeah, there's another guy called Sidon Sticker for for Japanese. Um, yeah, I think it comes out of like the um you know, I I don't want to be breaking the news here, but basically area studies is sort of came mm. out of the the CIA and 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 something, you know, and th these men come out of to great extent that area studies departments or or sort of that same um you know academic departments producing knowledge about mm -hmm. about either cold war allies or or enemies and i i think i think well you know this is just showing my my ignorance perhaps because there 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 must be a, a french howard goldblatt but i <laughs> i don't know who it is there must be a german it's howard goldblatt there i just out. saw i just saw mm -hmm. um I just saw a Turk, uh, a, a, um, a man referred to as the Turkish Howard Goldblatt uh, a couple of days ago. Um, I, I completely forget his name, despite having met him several times. Oh, he might have been on the show. Um, 
he was on but no there was a turkish a guy translator on uh now what was it it was that guy i really like gofey Gere Fidan was that yeah it? yeah he's hey. he's 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 a basically just like um bringing all these works into into translation in turkish that were either just translated from english before or or weren't in translation modern stuff and go, going back to dream of red mansions and and those classic works mm. well what i've learned through the show is that for countries like like that that are um well they're not they're not smaller but maybe the the market for stuff translated smaller from chinese languages. is smaller smaller languages one one countries uh with one well language countries that have man how do i say this countries with their own language that is particular to that to that nation so like gurefidan for turkey turkish um stefan rusanov for bulgaria bulgarian and then uh co-guesting on that episode that gofe episode with gire is uh, rauno sainio probably mispronouncing that who's uh finnish and what they both told me and what stefan's told me is like they've maybe got one rival in their home country for translating uh chinese literature into the the native language so yeah it, i guess it's it's easier to be to be the gold black what i was also going to say about the like the dominance of like the area studies and and, and stuff is that there's almost an opposite in translated Chinese lit, at least it, maybe not anymore, but in the past, because the first translated Chinese lit I ever read was Lu Xun, translated by uh, Yang Xianyi and Gladys Yang. And I know another figure who, I think he did a, one of the first translations, if not the first, of Shui uh, Hujuan into English was Sidney Shapiro, who was uh, American living, I think, in I believe in Mao's China. I think he was there for quite a while, sort of within the party system in a way. So obviously that's, well, not obviously, but that's not really a thing anymore. But it's just interesting that some of the big name Chinese to English translators of literature in the past were sort of inside that party system. But then your Howard Goldblatt's come out from something almost opposite, the US military. But anyway, I, I said I would take it back to the... To the um, the what's it the stream of consciousness chapter and i will i found a particularly insane bit i'd like to read so i'll i'm starting halfway through a line here we go i've fallen into your evil trap he ignores my protest a sinister smile he fills a big glass with a pink and green emerald liquid red mane stallion like a, a sex crazed wanton woman laughing hideously inside the glass teasing me horrifying me no no i've had enough mother help me pinching my ears didn't help so he pinches my nose pries open my clenched teeth and forces the glass of red mane stallion down that organ of mine called a mouth like a baby with its mother's nipple in its mouth i gurgle but can't spit it out a burning flame licks down my corrupt throat into my stinking stomach and dissolves i feel gutted by a knife my eyes are closed i want to stand up but i can't oh but can't find my legs where are my legs hanging from the ceiling swinging back and forth like hams from jinhua hanging in a butcher shop look even more like prosthetic legs hanging from hooks in a specialty store for the disabled punch the con man the evildoer li though but my arms are gone too there's nothing left so much evil cannot go unpunished it's just a matter of a time the day of atonement has arrived and i've i've ended halfway through a line there was more 
bombastic <laughs> stuff in the next couple of lines, but I had I had to stop. So yeah, the the idea of excess we haven't talked much about excess, but it's a totally excessive novel and you get an excess mm-hmm. of the excess there. And I think I don't know, I'm guessing the Chinese is is similar. Maybe he didn't have to work too hard, but like some of the choices of words uh in English are nice and bombastic as well. Um and yeah, just it, it verged into horror there for a second, severed limbs and stuff. So yeah, if 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 it's a sedate, um, gentlemanly literature readers are looking for, pick a different book. It's not <laughs> this one. Um, did you find the book disgusting? Yeah, I found a lot of scatological humor. Definitely, I've almost found that par for the course for this generation of of literary authors in China. That's a recurring theme on this podcast, but yeah, the scatological stuff is is definitely here too. And sometimes it was just like physically, how could you still be walking after you've lost all your clothes, you've lost all your stuff, and then supposedly everything that happened in the dwarfs' um, hotel slash restaurant. Um, how how are you still walking outside? How are you even moving? But that's that's not necessarily gross. It's just part of that absurdist like. Yeah. Logic doesn't apply here. Were you disgusted at all doing that? Or were yeah. you all right? There's uh I was thinking of one of the the short stories that Li Do writes, which is about um a dish involving the the genitals of a of a male and female donkey put together. Oh yeah. yeah. And um, you know, he's he 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 writes this letter back to Moyen who who who's not really fond of the story or doesn't seem finds a dish very appetizing and he says what's filthy about a dish that even famed critics and renowned musicians from Beijing shovel down their throats as fast as they can what we are pursuing is beauty nothing but beauty it's not true beauty if we didn't create it creating beauty with beauty is not beauty either real beauty is achieved by transforming the ugly into the beautiful and I, I think that maybe that's sort of kind of what he's uh, trying to do here is is sort of this poetic um, version of these terrible, uh, really ugly th- moments like this entire part about, you know, the uh, the consumption of of infants and and the the braised infants uh, taking these these completely horrific moments, you know, that are you know, in, in sort of stark language would be, would, would cause the reader to turn away and to vomit and to turn them into something sort of uh, beautiful in his own way. Uh, I think he's sort of turning those, he's doing what, what that chef and Lee, those story is doing with the genitals of a donkey with, uh, with his novel. We're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. But others of us are facing down, looking through the drain grating and seeing stars glimmering in, in the slime down below. <laughs> there's there's a tortured analogy for you, or metaphor, image, whatever. Tortured, whatever it is. We've been going for an hour and a half. I thought we could talk about the musical pairings. I We're going to have more of these in part two, but um, I know I've got one lined up. Uh, Michelle, you've got one lined up. Dylan, is it too much? Was it too much? To demand a second musical pairing, should we just have yours in part? Are you two? sure I gave one in the first time? In this, uh, oh, did I give one? I think you did. I've... Yeah, yes, it was. It was timely. It was prophetic. It was the Pogues. 
Oh yeah, I was gonna Weird. give the same one today because I'd completely forgotten uh, about <laughs> that, and I I'd completely forgotten. So so yes, that please, the liquor. please skip me. Yeah, what a great song though, <laughs> and and uh, you know Shane McGowan is a uh, is another guy who uh, mm. who who you know is proof. He kind of I don't know if he disproved or proved that that you need to uh, have a little liquor to get their creative juices flowing. He sort of tortured himself along the way. Mm. What a what a terrible existence he led while producing uh, amazingly beautiful poetry and music. Mm. So, listeners, you you won't know unless I tell you. Part two, which we recorded first, because of, of course we did that. We recorded before Shane McGowan passed away, the Polk's front man. Oh. He's since passed away, and now we're recording after he died. And Dylan recommended that Polk song on that yeah, part two. So. Yeah, really good song. It's called "At the Sick Bed of Kuhalan from Rum Sodomy and the Lash, a song about. Well, you'll hear about it, but if you don't get mm -hmm. that far, a song about drinking to excess and seeing other worlds and uh, seeing mythical figures in your alcohol haze. If this wasn't a sober conversation, I'd be pouring one out, or at least pouring it down my throat. <laughs> yeah. So the song I've picked to pair called. Wanderlust or Wanderlust, I suppose, uh, by Every Time I Die, a metalcore band whose peak was probably in the noughties. It's one of my absolute favorite songs, to be honest. And I'll just I'll just read part of the lyrics. I'll read a couple bits. Morals are simply a matter of time, and where you lay your head is a question of pride. But when it's said and done, you'll find it in the lines that privilege and wit made me misfortune's child. So morals are simply a matter of time. Where you lay your head is a question of pride. I think that relates to Republic of Wine because uh, corruption is like an active process in the book. No one comes out clean. No one goes in particularly mm. clean either. Um, and the thing about privilege, I bring it up because I think we have a privileged cop, but I think also Moyan's maybe reflecting on his privilege as an author in that it gets him respect, which he then, or it gets him face and respect, which he then cashes in by getting really pissed at uh, in the <laughs> banquets thrown by government officials. And the sense of shame is like, palpable in this song because it, it ends with these three lines when they unearth these passages will i appear to be proud not if you're listening close enough not if you're sounding it out because the whole song is like this celebration of like debauchery you get the impression he's hinting about when being on tour maybe sleeping around or something and it sounds like everything is a big aesthetic celebration of rock and roll drugs probably booze or booze probably drugs 
but like at the end he's saying like look if you look if you look closely i'm not proud i'm literally calling myself a wretch and a, and a dead man and interestingly every time i die they fell apart like a year or two ago and it was after the front man became sober after he sobered up i think he became a bit of an asshole and fell out with the rest of the band um so the story goes so probably he was i don't know he'd figured out how to be an asshole and get away with it while drunk and wretched but then flipped it around and it fell apart but yeah um i also wanted to name drop another one of their songs because this will connect with something that you'll hear me bringing up in part two um the song is called partying is such sweet sorrow and it starts off like this at the bottom of the first drink i find my nerve at the bottom of the next one, I met my girl. At the bottom of the third drink, I found a fourth. And at the bottom of that one was a Trojan horse. And I won't, <laughs> like, I I get into this more in the next episode, but um, in the next episode, in the next part of the conversation. But, like, I think a thing that's interesting about drinking is that um, it's a repetitive process, um, but each repetition is not the same. You're not the same after the first drink or the second. or the, Maybe it blurs a bit, probably nine drinks in you're similar to what you are 11 drinks in but like it's maybe not so much in the book but i find that an interesting thing about drinking and that thing about repetition not being really repetition is not my own idea mm. it's one i learned from a different podcast hosting something else um that's more just the hook i'm dangling for listeners to keep listening so yeah that's my pairing michelle i believe you've got one as well it's totally from left field yeah um, so Suck em Up is a song that is done in kind of Hawaiian type rock and it's been done by Don Ho and also Buddy Fo. I really like the Buddy Fo version. It's live and he's like calling the audience out like Come on you people back there. Let me see your glasses. Lift them up. Everybody. What are you drinking? Water? Whatever you're drinking. Okay. Now I've heard uh, an expression here use while well, I was drinking called skull, which means like, drink up, right? In the islands in Hawaii, we say suck them up. Suck them up. Yeah? And we got a song called suck them up, suck them up, suck them up. It goes like this. Everybody sing, uh-huh. Suck them up. Suck them up. Suck them up. Suck them up. Suck em up. Everybody sing, uh-huh. Suck them up. Come on, you guys. Suck them up. Suck em up, suck em up, again. Suck em up, suck em up, suck em up, suck em up. Everybody sing, uh-huh. Suck em up, yeah, yeah. Suck em up, suck em up, that's a new one. How you do that? What does that mean? You're empty? Waitress, this guy is empty over here. That's a new one. When you're empty, just tell me your glass. Oh, you need to drink more. You know, this is how this hotel makes money, <laughs> which is just like Liquorland. Like, this is how we support our economy. You need to drink more. But then the lyrics come into these parts of like, you know, this social worker has been drunk for 30 days. This person doesn't go to school, doesn't read or write because she's hanging out with the Beach Boys. <laughs> and so even though it's like, yeah, drinking is great because it's what keeps our economy going. It's like, yeah, drinking is in so many different ways destroying different lives and yet the song is so happy like when i listen to it it kind of puts me in a good mood even though the lyrics are like really sad so 
it's just that nice mishmash of um, being playful and yet there's just this undertone of destruction or toxicity and being like promoting it even though you know that there's there's consequences that could be like really serious yeah it just goes to show like the moral slash economic insistence urge imperative to drink isn't limited to marxist leninist governments just right now in the uk our prime minister rishi sunak is being questioned about an initiative he had when he was chancellor during the pandemic this thing called eat out to help out where um as we've learned now during this inquiry against all scientific advice he launched a scheme where you could was it that the government would something like the government would subsidize discounts at restaurants and i think possibly bars as well so it was the idea was the lockdown is killing the service industry we'll help it out by encouraging people to go out for a meal or a drink and the it, it was branded eat out to help out so citizens of the pandemic go help out the national economy by going for a meal in a socially distanced restaurant i took part in that because i was so excited for like a pint and maybe a burger and a plate of chips or something but it was totally totally framed as like a way to support the nation um so mm-hmm. yeah and it was i don't know i didn't get i didn't get infected from that but in hindsight knowing that that wasn't approved by the the government or the cabinet's advisors and they just went ahead with it anyway leaves a weird taste in the throat so to speak <laughs> the uh, then the national tax agency here in japan was was realizing that their their revenues were down young people don't drink as much as the last generation so they they had a sort of a competition between advertising agencies and and you know pub calls for public uh input on how to raise the the national liquor consumption especially among young people who have aren't are don't embrace the lifestyle of of hardcore booze pounding interesting i mean god forbid they spend their money on a different industry or god forbid they just save the money sure that that would be change it's the same in the uk i think people are drinking less people are smoking less it's probably because there's other other diversions available it's not that we've become more saintly or anything um i meant i realized i meant earlier to see if i could draw in some quotes from other reviews or commentary on the book i thought i'd just do that now before we wind down so i looked at goodreads i found a very amusing three-star review on goodreads because i figured five stars mm-hmm. it's the sycophants it's the leados one star reviews <laughs> it's people who didn't understand the book and are mad that they did they take it out on the book that they didn't understand it so this is by i think an older man here it is my wife and i were about to watch a film the other night when i spoke loudly during the previews it is becoming increasingly difficult to appreciate film when the screen is constantly being obscured by references colon i'm getting too old my appreciation for republic of wine thus pivoted on these gross overbearing metaphors colon a town built on alcohol and the practice practice of eating children where does one even begin the literal and symbolic asides to the cultural revolution alone boggle the modern reader consider me boggled and then sickened well almost anyway 
There was reading as gagging sublimation underway. I pushed through it, though without relief. Moyan's novel reminded me of Kafka's castle. It's probably where I got the idea. Replete with sticky tavern floors and loose women. Each chapter is punctuated by an epistolary, epistolary exchanges between Moyan and a resident of Liquorville, a doctoral candidate in distilling, as well as an aspiring author. A story from the aspiring author then follows before the chief thread of the novel is resumed. I appreciated the asides and stories more than the blind drunk narrative arc. This isn't for the squeamish. And then for like the hashtag, he put sinosized, as in like supersized, which I thought was curious. And then I read a couple of papers before doing my conversation with Dylan and Martin Venter. I had a look at the abstract of another that I thought was interesting. Uh, it was comparing James Joyce and Moyan's, I think James Joyce's Ulysses and this book and Plus Frog by uh, Moyan. Uh, looking at the theme of cannibalism, because apparently cannibalism comes up in Ulysses, and obviously cannibalism's in this book. And like the thrust of the argument was that in Irish literature, there's not an awful lot about the Great Irish the Famine, and it's also suspected that some people were able to survive using survival cannibalism. So in the absence of food, eating people that have died because of the famine. And there's similar thoughts, I guess, about the Great Famine uh, that happened. I guess not long after the the Chinese Revolution under under Mao Zedong, and it's definitely notable in like translated Chinese literature that I've read that some things like the Cultural Revolution are up for discussion, but the famine. I've read one book where it, where it pops up, Yan uh, Ko's Lenin's Kisses, but basically it like seems to be as deleted from public consciousness. As Tiananmen, probably more deleted because it's longer ago, as far as as far as I could tell. So I'll just like read one wee quote from this essay because I didn't read the whole thing. Uh, however, not only did the structures of power consume people, but devour as ecological cannibals. But people as ecological cannibals devour one another. Bloom, that's I think the main character of Ulysses, realizes that everybody is eating everyone else, especially thinking of all the odd things people pick up for food. Observing that people eat like animals feeding, he silently cries, eat or be eaten, kill, kill. Like other animals stuffing food in one hole and out behind, we have to feed the body like stoking an engine. All forms of, all life forms are intertwined. Yes, all life forms are intertwined in the food chain. One becoming food, child, blood, dung, earth, and again food for another. And I guess another parallel with Moyan there is scatological stuff. I guess food and poo are different steps in the same chain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so again, no big comment there, just but it did underline like maybe there are echoes of historical famine from Chinese history, and not just from the communist period, just through history, I guess there's been a lot of famines in what's a very large agricultural nation that's gone through a lot of crises at different times. So yeah, I don't know, not much to say about that. Do either of you want to comment on that or shall we just march on to the, the concluding remarks? Uh, I'll say it's interesting to read Goodreads reviews of, of Chinese novels, especially kind of more literary stuff. Uh, it's kind of interesting to see what what is sort of 
what wouldn't be you know at all controversial in a in a work by a chinese author often it's scatological stuff it's people mm. falling into cesspools and and uh you know uh, which it comes up in basically every every big modern chinese novel or, or quite frequently there's some some mention of of you know some fecal uh disturbance or some fecal misfarts Quite a lot of yeah, farts. That's right. Farts. Or yes. or even like the donkey um genitals in this in this book and and um castration is is something that I've translated numerous times that that always pops up on on Goodreads. It's it's one of those things that is will will set set off um a lot of English language readers who are not used to reading um really terrifying descriptions of of feces and and uh and even descriptions of of you know organs of of whether you know human or animal and and you know sexual assault and and very tough language like that there's this there's there's this book by otessa moshveg um published a couple of years ago called lapvona which is this sort of i don't know if gothic is the right word it's sort of set in the dark ages she's this this American writer who's most famous for, for, for writing these books about like 20 something women in the city. Um, her, her most famous book is about a woman who stays inside for, for, um, you know, a year. She also wrote some really mm. great short stories set in China that were published by vice. Anyways, this book is, uh. is sort of a terrifying, um, dark ages novel that, that pushes every, every, every button. She, plunges her her thumb into the eye socket of of every reader with these terrifying descriptions of of cannibalism and and of 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 sexual assault and of and of butchery of 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 children and and innocent women and and gory executions and it, the book was terribly reviewed and was was widely panned and and almost every review mentioned um you know we we hated it was terrible what she did um there's one scene has become if you if you look up the grape scene from from lapvona has sort of become infamous because it it was it was sort of a thumb in the eye of uh all, all these terrible things piled on top of each other and and that's what chinese novels are are often doing if you look at somebody like like yu hua who loves the scatological stuff and uh, Mo Yen and even even Yen Lian and will indulge in that from time to time. Certainly, Zapinghua, all these big names that are that are translated, they they don't violate tab their own taboos of their own countries, like mentioning mm. particular famines or or various political matters. But there are taboos that they that they wander into quite freely that are that are taboos for for us. It's, it sometimes makes it very uh, difficult to translate these things because you know when you're translating it that you're sort of um, you're sort of breaking the rule. And if you were writing this in English, you would sort of edit it a little more carefully. But it's it's all in there. You lose readers with every line. Yeah, that's Absolutely. right. These terrible, like uh, just did the the book I just did. Terrible description of a of a of an infant born without a rectum, and um, you know I I can just picture like every every english everybody reading the english language version and just you know closing the book at that point and saying okay i've i've had enough uh culture for the day uh let's see what else is out there absolutely i was gonna say what the your 
phrase there, horrifying descriptions of feces. I would prefer it if all the stuff I encountered in Chinese translated Chinese lit was horrifying because then it would have an effect. Like that description of the cesspool and the guy slowly sinking into it and can't, it's fantastic. Absolutely terrifying and a fitting thematic end to the book. It's the more sort of like, I don't know, a character feels nervous or just like to, to, to what comes across to me is like gratuitous or just silly. Like a character feels nervous or a character sees someone he really admires and is in awe of and can't help but slip out a fart. And it's like, it's a weighty literary novel. It's like, either this is a cultural difference or this is just a choice that I, aesthetic choice that I think sucks. Those, I have no time. I, I've got fed up with them. I don't think I would ever get used to them. But like the, at least the use of the, the, the cesspit, like I thought that really worked. There's a, there's um in, in a book called Brothers by Yuhua, the book mm. opens with a, um, a, a, a feces mishap played for laughs. Uh, a man has has climbed into the cesspool underneath a, a a public washroom to peer up at the you know the the genitals of the uh, of women who who come in to use it. And he he drowns and there's flies buzzing around and he's choking on on liquid feces and urine and it, and it's all played for laughs and. Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting what what's what's played for laughs and what what's not. On that lovely note, do we have any final sober thoughts before we give way for the the drunken uh, conversation to follow? Well, I just want to say that reading this book by myself was good in parts and boring in other parts, or just downright frustrating. And it was so good to uh, have other people to talk to about the book because I see it in a different way and get to see how it relates to the rest of the literary world so thank you both mm. i think i give my, my actual verdict on the book in part two so listeners if you want to see if i agree with michelle just keep, keep going <laughs> um yeah and I'll, I'll spare all my further thoughts because they're coming um don't yeah. have any final thoughts um it'll be really interesting this this episode perhaps will serve as a as a warning, just like this novel itself about the dangers of drinking, because you're hearing me now and, and Angus very, very <laughs> sober. And, and uh, you know, uh, did you see that? Just, just now I recalled several books and several authors' names, mm. and you're about to hear me sort of rambling and, and trying to, to remember things that I can't remember in the fog, stumbling forward. And, uh, you know, you don't need to be... You don't need to drink to be a genius. You'll see that both Angus and myself, well, Angus is always see. very articulate. So, but it is, let it serve as a warning. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll say conversely, listeners, you heard me like fail to recall names of like people I befriended through this show, names of <laughs> novels, and then drunken episode, you'll maybe hear them flowing out much more easily. So there's no easy answers. Okay. Um, as to whether or not no. you should drink me and dylan are like the, the the two statues or demons one always lies one always tells the truth but maybe one of them's lying about lying so good luck figuring any of it out okay um final final closing remarks uh recommendations of other similar books i see we've got two here from michelle do you want to do you want to um sure pitch them yeah 
I think I'll just mention Rickshaw Boy and a brief history of Seven Killings by Marlon James. Uh, James. Rickshaw Boy was written by Lao Shu and was also translated by Howard Globblatt. So partly in penance for saying, I can't believe he made this book so long. I can't believe he chose two words when he could have chosen one. I'd like to say that I really enjoyed Rickshaw Boy. And also manages to um, really, in an engaging way, talk about Chinese culture, which is what some people say, that's the reason why this book is so incredible, is because you get so many different strands of Chinese culture coming across through this absurdist story. And then a a brief history of Seven Killings by Marilyn James takes place in Jamaica. It was originally written in English, as far as I'm aware where it's not translated into Chinese. So it's not really the same kettle of fish at all. However, it is fiction that has some aspects of the real world or kind of corruption in society, violence in society, and a lot of um, bloody or scatological or just really intense things happening on every other page. So I think if you liked Republic of Wine, and you want more of this intensity, then that might be a good place to look. That's also an award-winning book, if I remember correctly. I'll throw in one as well. Um, that also has really intense stuff and has grime and grit and terrible people. It's a collection of short stories by my countryman, Irving Welsh, called The Acid House. And I seem to recall there's a short story where I think it opens with a guy getting like hit by lightning and transformed like powered up in some way and i just remember the descriptions are like a little bit like some parts of that free verse no what you call it stream of consciousness chapter just incredibly metal like intense cranked up to 11 language but also done so vividly and i think i haven't talked about it much in this conversation maybe not much in the next one in fact no there's a bit in the next one where i quote a page where the detective is like being it's like his it's describing how like the alcohol is affecting his brain and filling him with anger and he feels like his head's inflating and his hairs are standing. It's like this incredibly in OTT uh, un- hyper-real, hyper-real? That's not right. Just very, very cranked up. In- hyperbolic? Hyperbolic, yeah. Um, something like that. Incredibly intense, <laughs> um, unsubtle, literary, beautiful language and that is there in Acid House, along with like sleazy guys in badly paid jobs. So like for grit and grime and the odd moment of fist clenching intensity, I think Irvin Welsh and Moyan could be compared. So that's that's my recommendation. That's all I think. I'm ready to to close this one up, I think. So thank you to you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Okay, that's the end of the sober conversation. Now the drunk conversation is coming up. You can listen and see just how drunk you think we're getting. I didn't really feel a big change as we were chatting. I maybe was becoming a bit more free-flowing, but on a re-listen, I think you can hear this one affecting uh, Dylan as we go along. By the way, if you do hear any reference to us planning an interview that included a different translator, maybe Eric Abrahamson, um, that's the, plot, the place where plans change slightly. I forget if, if that's mentioned in the discussion or not, but if you hear it, that that's the deal. We just had to change plans. So enjoy, and um, if if you have the opportunity, this would be a great chance for you to, to grab a alcoholic beverage of your choosing. But don't feel pressured. Have tea, have water, don't drink anything at all. We're not here to force you to do anything against your will, okay? 
So relax. On the show, we have a returning guest for the third time, I think, the only Viking. And also here for the first time is Martin Winter. Very exciting to have you both here. We're going to be talking about, well, actually, you all know because you've already listened to part one. This is another round, the second round of our conversation about Moyen's Republic of Wine. And this time we are in the spirit of the novel. We're going to be drinking as we speak. I have here with me, I don't I don't know if I'll be keeping the video, but I'll hold it up to the camera anyway. The podcaster and the translator's favorite drink, the proper job, something we all crave. I'm going to crack it right in front of the microphone. There it goes. Martin, what have you got there? Um, red currant cider. That's, uh, my girlfriend likes fruity ciders quite a lot. <laughs> I think last time you were on the show, Dylan, you were drinking whiskey. Yeah, that's uh, that's quite often. But today I've 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 switched it up. So I'm drinking some. Uh, let me hold up the bottle, even if nobody can see it, except for you two gentlemen. Uh, it's a bottle of shochu, so uh, a, a Japanese spirit made from barley. This one is infused. In fact, it's infused with with what with what you might call. Um, Citron peppercorns, uh, or 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 some kind of uh, indigenous um, variety of it from Japan. So right. it's a little bit spicy, citrusy, and uh, it's got that kick from that barley uh, barley spirits. Nice. I have a little something I want to surprise you both with. Um, before I do that, maybe we could introduce you to the listeners. Dylan, you've been here before. Uh, we can do a reintroduction, but Martin, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about who you are? I am from Austria, from Vienna. I've studied Chinese uh, and uh, literature, also German literature. And I went to Taiwan in 1988 for two years. And in the 90s, I've been to different cities in China. And in... 1999, I started to live in Beijing and stayed until 2008. And after that, I have mostly lived in Vienna. Nice. And do you have a connection with literature, Chinese literature? Yes, I translate uh, Chinese literature. I have um, edited the German version of um, Passlight, which is called Leuchtspur. And uh, yeah, I'm still doing that. And I have translated novels, stories, much poetry. And I write poems myself. The one said you were a fan of, or a booster indeed, of, was it Shen Haobo? Uh, I... Shanghai Boy has um, I published uh, a book of mine, uh, yes, uh, in, in China. Nice. I even have it here, yeah. I remembered what it was I was going to say. It was when Dylan was... Oh, there's your book. Great, I'm going to have to stick this on YouTube now. So many visual aids. Uh, yeah, um, I remember what I was going to say about when Dylan revealed his choice of beverage. Soldier, I was thinking maybe 
to avoid toilet breaks, I should be I should have gone with a spirit and not not beer, uh, Abaijo. But the price of an arguato here in uh, or in Manchester is it must be about twenty times of what you'd pay for it in China. So I I couldn't face it, and yeah. I also thought it'd be a bit too dangerous. <laughs> I might really blow it and drink it too fast, so I avoided that. Uh, Dylan, do you want to reintroduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a translator of Chinese literature. Uh, my most recent book that I did was the Shanxi Opera by Jia Pinghua. I've also translated uh, Mai Jia, um, and, 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 and a long list of of, of contemporary authors. I'm working right now on translating a memoir by Cai Chongda, whose work I've translated before, and that should be out in sometime next year. Nice. I may have you may have given me some Tai Chong Da to read before. What is that? Is that a male author? And is am I yeah. remembering that he's from Dongbei, or have I got that wrong? You've got that wrong. He's in fact, <laughs> he's um he's a very cool guy. He's he became an editor at GQ, oh, right. and he's also an entrepreneur in the fashion business. But he writes these beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Um, memoirs about life on, in coastal Fujian. Lots of very touching stories about his his mother and his grandmother and local customs. It, it does sound kind of like uh, kind of like chicken soup for the soul kind of vibes, but it's it it does have teeth to it also. And he's uh, just an, an amazing writer. The book did very well in no no. It, the book came out through Harper Collins, the mm. original book, which is called Vessel. Uh, came out in in the United States and and I think nobody read it, but the the book did very well in Russia and in the Arab world, yeah. uh, those places, which were in fact a translation of my English translation. So yeah. somebody was reading the book, but uh, nobody that nobody read it in English translation, basically. And you were somewhat involved in that success. So are you saying <laughs> that there's right. another another of his books that you're doing now? Is that? Yeah, he's he's uh, which is called simply Fate. And it's a book that did did, did very well uh, critically and commercially in China over the past two years. It's a, basically like a blockbuster book. And um, I'm going to translate it into English and, and nobody's going to read it. But it's actually the, the first book is the, the, the movie rights have been, have been optioned and they're okay. working on turning it into a film. So if, if the film has any success, uh, it will be a kind of a boon to the to the first book and perhaps it'll get a wider readership the readership that it deserves i think i'll confess that a uh, vessel was on my list of books to maybe buy uh, but it's still on there i i think i'm i'm in, i'm pretty interested someone in in gq in fujian that's interesting okay right so we have to get to business um talking about public of wine but um before we really really get to business i'm going to reveal that i prepared a drinking game. I'm going to call it Republic of Wine Landmines. Like a, bing a bingo game, basically. But uh, every time a bingo word is used, I'll score it off so that we, are, we don't get totally smashed. So I've written down a bunch of keywords. If I hear one of us say them, I'll say bingo or something. <laughs> and um, at the very least, I'll take a swig of my beer and you two are, are free to join in. We'll see. We'll see if they all come up in the first five minutes. They may well. So, why are we drinking? Um, because this is a novel 
all about booze but before we get into the booze we should just get into like the structure and the plot i went into this book not realizing how weird the structure was gonna be i thought it would be a somewhat experimental novel but i'd be following one character all the way through but it's really not that would either of you like to go into more depth about either the structure or the plot or if if not i can monologue sure sure i i'm it's essentially a story of a special investigator sent by sent by the party sent by the government that's one of the the party that's one of the right words oh no all right well let me have a quick drink here okay that's scored off now all right so this guy is sent down to a sort of a rural jurisdiction and he's going to investigate corruption and he also hears that there's rumors of cannibalism there so he's looking into that that's sort of the the main plot which I, i'll set aside for a second and on top of that there is sort of a um a, a little bit of metafictional play going on oh. where yeah where um there's a writer a phd candidate he's sending letters to moyen to a, a fictional moyen or the real moyen and talking about his studies in 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 alcohol he's doing a phd in alcohol in a place called liquorland and he sends his own stories to moyen these are grotesque terrifying stories that that reflect sort of what's going on that 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 the special investigator is going to investigate so then we get the scenes of this special investigator being seduced being pulled deeper into this grotesque fantasy world uh, this booze soaked excessive debaucherous um fantasy debauchery is one of the words oh no all right let me drink again (laughs) and then the those that those stories are are intercut with um with the letters between um the the phd candidate who's called Li Do and moyen and then at the I don't know if it spoils anything but at the end moyen in fact goes to visit the the place and and the place the sort of the fantasy world that that this investigator is is being pulled deeper into and being seduced by is connected to the places that um lee do is describing in his is in the place where he seems to live uh, i don't know if that gets to it it's it's a very complicated plot yeah. Liquorland is Jugal. In in English, it's a Republic of Wine, uh, but uh, in Chinese, uh, it's Jugor, mm-hmm. and that's literally uh, Liquorland. Republic of Wine, something like that. I was thinking of asking about that because in uh, I read the English translation, translated by Howard Goldblatt, and he named that Republic of Wine. I know enough Chinese. Um, to understand that Jogwa is like something like alcohol country, so Republic of Wine is obviously a creative translation of that. But then in the book, in the translation, the location is is referred to as Liquorland. So I was wondering if Republic of Wine is Jogwa and Liquorland comes from some other similar Chinese term. But from what I'm gathering, it's all just Jogwa in the original Chinese. Interesting, because yeah. I think that yeah. changes the effect slightly in the English translation. There was actually an an alternate title, uh, which was Mingdianguo, which is like drunken country. 
uh, right. was, was what it, what it, I think it may be even first appeared under that title and was changed later. But yeah, it's, it's interesting that, that, that throughout it's liquor land, but on the title, on the cover page, it is, it is Republic of Wine. It's a nice, rich name. Yeah, I was wondering if it was playing off of some other title, some other book title, Republic of, but I, I can't mm. think of it. None come to mind, exactly. I'm going to type the Republic of, but I suppose if I put the Republic of something into Google, I'll just get the name of countries. Right. Maybe it's to make people think of the People's Republic of China. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I think you nailed it. There yeah. we go. Solved it. Um, right. Yeah, I was going to try and talk a bit about some of the characters. Um, so we've got our main detective, Ding Guo. Are we've got? I guess the the villain, or if there is one villain, he's he's quite interesting in terms of the themes. A guy called Diamond Jin, who is like this indestructible, infallible, charming, uh, charmer of women and men. Um, and he can he can he never gets drunk. He can take like an infinite amount of drink, which is probably his. In this book, that's the source of all his power. Um, so there's him, and then we have I guess the femme fatale of the novel who's I think only ever referred to as the lady trucker, which is a pretty, I don't know. I wonder if that sounds a bit less awkward in Chinese, but um, she's with us pretty much from the start to the end, um, adopting a number of different roles. At first, she's just a woman driving our detective into Liquorland, And then it turns out she's like the the villain's wife, who she's going to betray. Um, so she's, I guess it's some kind of weird use of a, a film fatale. Um, and about Lee Do, something I would not have known with my inferior um, Mandarin skills is that his name means something like One Pint Lee. And the reason I got clued into that is there's an intro to the English translation by Howard Goldblatt. And he's, it was quite canny. He's like, he said something like, there are lots of things uh, like names with meanings that I could have translated, lots of, lots of hidden meanings that I didn't want to clutter the book with. For example, I would never tell you that Li Yido's name means one pint Li. And then there you go. He's told you that's what the name means, if you didn't know, without sticking it into the main body of the book, which I thought was amusing. Uh, I don't know if there's any other characters I'm desperate to discuss, apart from maybe the very strange demon baby that appears in Li Yido's stories. Um, I don't even really know where to begin with that, but one of the narratives in the stories that Li Yido is sending to the fictional Moyan talks about this it starts with this family who are selling their baby to like the baby farm to be sent to the kitchen to turn them into meat for the meals of the, the rich and powerful but it turns out one of the babies is in fact some kind of weird um, demon creature who then sort of develops slash blurs into being a dwarf tavern owner who becomes like another local strongman i don't remember his name but um you true i think yes yeah he's he's a player as well so he's probably going to come up listeners who've not read this before might be realizing just how strange this book is i guess we can get into the booze the cannibalism we've heard about and i think food cannibalism slash food are all pretty important but like i don't know there's there's a whole lot to talk about here does anyone want to jump in well, I guess the the first thing to reveal is that um, it 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 does seem that there is cannibalism going on. That's that's the the key point. That that that's what that's what our special investigator 
um, comes to understand. He's he's pulled into the world of these corrupt um, party officials, and he's winds up at a banquet uh, where he sees a, a nude infant boy, uh, a braised infant set up on the table, and they tell him no 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 you've got the wrong idea this is this is all made this the the leg is made of a of a very fine ham and the the head is is made of a cabbage and the arms are made of lotus roots and and diamond jim reaches out with his chopsticks and tweaks the the penis of the boy and it and it comes comes to pieces and finally the special investigator goes and and tastes and and eats of the of the braised infant after they've sort of goaded him into drinking lots of liquor. Yes, he is completely smashed. Um, and it, he's slowly pulled in into that world um, through the, the power of alcohol. Everything is sort of taking place as a sort of like a terrible alcohol hallucination that might be real and might not be real. And... Uh, yeah, I, I I don't know what my point was there, but that the key point is that there that there is everything that Lee Lee always is talking about in his letters about selling children and and all those things seem to be reflecting the reality that um, that our special investigator is encountering that the terrible things. Yeah, and that that scene where our our detective is sort of being knocked you know knocked off his feet with um, catering services alcohol charm and then finally um food that and some of the other opening segments were my favorite parts of the book because the descriptions and the scenes and the characters are so cartoonish and like eye bulging and mental i i have a few uh, i i i read the book on the kindle and i highlighted lots of bits and i was reading through the bits i highlighted and definitely some of the sections at the start were easily my favorite so i thought i'd read through a few just to give a sense of how like unhinged this book is and that will eventually lead us to this this scene where the the officials are trying to implicate our guy into their world so here dingo are is um approaching the Kurland and this mount luo coal mine which is i guess his entry point into this district special investigator dingo of the higher procurator Procuratorate climbed aboard a liberation truck and set out for the Mount Loa coal mine to undertake a special investigation. He was thinking so hard as he rode along that his head swelled into the size 58 brown duckbill cap which, cap, which was normally quite roomy, seemed to clamp down on his skull. He was not a happy man as he took off the cap, examined the watery beads on his sweatband and smelled the greasy door. So, like, he's thinking so hard that his head no longer fits his hat so we're not really in normal reality right from the get-go and he's already like sweating surrounded by grease then he has an encounter with a guy who's trying to like stop him getting through a gate and one of the most insane things i've read probably all year follows which is this after shaking some of the water out of his hair and mopping off his neck he spit out a gob of saliva blinked several times and tried to focus on the gatekeeper's face he saw a pair of coal-black, shady-looking, dull eyes of different sizes, plus a bulbous nose, bright red like a hawthorn, and a set of obstinate teeth behind dark, discoloured lips. Hot flashes wove in and out of his brain, slithering through its runnels. Flames of anger rose in him, as if an internal match had been struck. 
White-hot embers singed his brain like cinders in an oven, like lightning bolts. His skull was transparent. Waves of courage crashed onto the beach of his chest. The gatekeeper's black hair, coarse as a dog's bristly fur, stood up straight. No doubt about it, the sight, the sight of Dingo Ur had scared the living hell out of him. Dingo Ur could see the man's nose hairs arching upward like swallowtails. An evil black swallow must be hiding in his head, where it has built a nest, laid its eggs, and raised its hatchlings. Taking aim at the swallow, he pulled the trigger. Pulled the trigger. The trigger. Pow, pow, pow. And you find out later he was firing blanks, but it sounds, for a second, like this guy who apparently has lightning bolts running through his brain just shot a man to death because he looked a little funny. It's just completely nuts. And I, I forgot if I already mentioned that, as well as things already not being normal, I think as soon as we meet the detective in his truck, he's already drinking. So just like a film noir detective, he's already not okay, or not on balance from the word go. Uh, okay, fast forwarding a bit. Here's the bit where he meets um, these two guys who proceed to get him drunk. One is the uh, boss of the, the mine, if I remember right. So he's a businessman. And one is a party boss. But they look exactly like twins. It's like something out of a absurdist novel. Or it actually had me thinking of kids or teenage books I read when I was a kid. Uh, the series of unfortunate events books, which have this sort of surreal hell world sort of vibe in different institutions like businesses, schools, government, I don't know, there's this weird, weirdo world inside institutions. Anyway, so this is this is where he meets these two guys, and I'm sorry I'm going on and on, but these bits are so good, I just had to, had to share them. Dingo R opened the door and walked in. It had been quite a journey filled with a range of experiences, but finally he was in the presence of the party secretary and the mine director. The two dignitaries were about 50 and had round, puffy faces like wheels of baked bread. Their skin was ruddy, about the colour of thousand-year eggs, and each had a bit of a general's paunch. They wore grey tunics with razor-sharp seams. Their smiles were kindly, magnanimous, magnanimous, sorry, like most men of high rank, and they could have been twins. Grasping Dungoar's hand, they shook it with gusto. They were practised handshakers, not too loose, not too tight, not too soft, not too hard. Dungoar felt a warm current surge through his body with each handshake as if it's as if his hands had closed around nice pulpy yams straight from the oven his briefcase fell to the floor a gunshot tore from within pow the briefcase was smoking a black uh, a brick in the wall crumbled dingo r's shock manifest manifested in hemorrhoidal spasms he actually saw the bullet shatter a glass mosaic glass mosaic painting on the wall the theme was Natha raises havoc at sea. The artist had fashioned the heavenly Natha as a plump, tender little baby boy, and the investigator's accidental firing had mangled Natha's little pecker. A crack shot if I ever saw one. The bird that sticks its head out gets shot. Dingo R was mortified. Scooping up his briefcase, he, sh he took out the pistol and flipped on the safety. I could have sworn the safety was on, he said. Even a thoroughbred stumbles sometimes. Guns go off all the time. So much I could say there. Suffice to say, everything still turned up to 11. The I, w I listened as prep for this episode to my episode on Moyan's Sandalwood Death, Tanxian Xing, with um, Stefan Rusinov. And we were saying in that one how everything is on the blurb. Someone's described the book as having lacerating prose. Everything is really in your face, sensual, vividly described. 
intense and i felt like i liked this bit of the book because all this imagery about yams and bread um sp- hemorrhoidal spasms it's all like very twitchy and intense the situation is absurd and you can tell it's a howard goldblatt goldblatt translation because every time a little willy is described it's a little pecker i, w- I was gonna say dylan when you were talking about the chopsticks tweaking it it's a little a little pecker I noticed that because when my girlfriend was reading Wolf Totem, she noticed the wolf cubs. Willie is a little pecker. So if you know if you like your Goldblatt as well as your Moyan, there's something for you here. Yeah, he uses his um, just to, to a bit of a tangent, but he Goldblatt tends to shy away from from the two dirty words. There's a lot of derrieres and. Um, lumps throughout but he does he does he does dig in when it's appropriate there's a great letter from from the phd student to to moyen about um a dish that he's he's describing which involves a a donkey's penis um sorry a donkey's vagina impaled Mm. with a donkey's penis and through there he he uses very uh very tough language where he he drops the dick and the and the the pussy mm-hmm. so um you know you, you this is this is howard goldblatt when he when it's appropriate he he dials it back but when it's absolutely necessary he'll he'll dig in i kind of wondered if um the little pecker comes from original an original chinese word gigi or jiba which i know one of them is the g is the g for chicken if i understand rightly so I wonder yeah, if that's, that's right. where that comes from. Pecker, I guess so. Chicken. I guess so. If so, what a clever man. Um, yeah, so we've established that there's there's cannibalism. I think the, the the presence of food, be it human food or not, is maybe worth getting to as well. There's a real like gourmand sort of thing going on. And I've been watching the Hannibal next Netflix show recently, which is when it starts out is like a food porn show as much as it is a, a psychological uh, th- thriller. But yeah, do, do either of you have any thoughts on booze in Chinese literature, booze in Chinese history or society, or indeed just booze in literature in general, never mind China specifically? Martin, you, you've not spoke for a while. Do you have any thoughts about just the theme and the uses of alcohol? Well, alcohol is very important in China, in Chinese literature, in poetry, Chinese poetry, but also poetry in, uh, yeah, actually Persian poetry, Arab poetry. <laughs> the word alcohol, right, uh, comes uh, from Arabic, and uh, it's basically in, in every Every culture I can think of, uh, every region I can think of, uh, alcohol is actually very important, whether it is uh, officially available uh, or promoted or uh, or not. In China, there is this uh, culture or uh, custom of of drinking heavily, not everywhere all the time, but uh, among cadres and, and so on. So, yes, yeah. The 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 way it takes place, 
I guess famously is at, at meals um, and often it's meals between people in the workplace or business or 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 politics and it's quite you see it in this book it's quite gendered it's usually men making other men drink a lot yes but how do you how do you think yeah. it ties into the literature because i'm sure there's there in fact i know there are some lines uh, in the exchanges between fictional moyan and the do saying like all literature, all great literature had to have alcohol involved in some way. Although fictional Moyan denies it and says, yeah, I only said that because I was drunk. Disregard it. Um, so a nice logical circle. <laughs> Dylan, do you, I know you have thoughts on this, but I'm going to ask anyway, do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I think I said uh, with, with, with very few exceptions, often, often women writers, pretty much every author I've met uh, every Chinese author I've met has been a uh, a heavy drinker. I mean, there's uh, part of that is 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 coming up in a cultural bureaucracy where you're required to drink, of course. But there is a connection, you know. As Martin says, there's all the great poets were drinking. You know, Li Bai was was uh, you know he wasn't uh, he wasn't turning down a cup of wine and. Uh, it is it is closely linked when you meet writers and when you meet and when you when you hear how they work it's it's quite often they they write until they're you know too drunk to to put another stroke on a character when they go out with their friends who are writers and when they when they when they talk when they when they gather to to put together these ideas which are going to be turned into into fiction it's it's around alcohol i i you know, to some extent, I think that's the that's how it that's how it is in Japan. That's how it is in Korea. That's how it is all over the world, and that's how it was in the West. I think um, before the the revolution of of in psychoactive substances of the nineteen sixties, mm. when there was a, a whole new world opened up, alcohol was was what gave people inspiration, um, and I, I think that's still true in China, where where writers are not you know. Um, very likely to be hitting a hash pipe or, or doing a couple lines of coke before writing, um, it, it sort of it sort of fills that that traditional role that it's always that it's always filled of of giving inspiration. Yeah, I forget which one of you said that the book gets pretty hallucinatory at points, which is, I think Dylan, you said he, that our guys having like alcoholic induced hallucinations. I think when I was a kid, I grew up under the impression yeah if you drink too much booze you will hallucinate because i saw barney on the simpsons uh, homer's friend seeing an elephant while drunk but like alcohol isn't well unless i've just never been drunk enough i think you've never been drunk enough i think you've never yeah. been having uh, for me it was dumbo seeing dumbo really? when i was a kid and seeing the pink elephants uh marching but even if you talk about like the um, yeah yes talk uh, about like baudelaire or yeah. or rambo yeah. Their 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 visions are not not always from hashish or, or anything like that. Like that in the yeah, I think if you do drink enough, um, wow. Angus, I would challenge you to to drink faster and drink harder, and I think, um, I think I, I you might out. be able to write as well as Moyen. I have been, I have got very drunk before, but I think I I pass out, or maybe I do hallucinate, but the memories don't stick. I I do lose memory a little worryingly easy. If I've been very drunk, see, you need to drink like you need to drink like 
a man drinks. A man. Oh, I, see. Uh, I, I I won't say anything about Moyen, but I'll I'll speak. Of, no, <laughs> no. But I, I, I drink like these men drank, which is drinking every day, drinking mm -hmm. every day to excess. At which point your mind is is much more open to that to that hallucinatory hallucinatory state. I've been there before. I've been there before it's because all the damage has restructured. Exactly, everything. exactly. And you're you're falling asleep at night in this alcoholic haze, and you're you're seeing things, and you're waking up in the morning. You're just on the verge of 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 the DTS, and you're 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 those are the moments when when uh, inspiration really hits, and those are the reasons why the writer drinks alcohol, if they have no. If they have no other access to, uh, you know, cannabis or mescaline or any other more novel substances. In my experiences, having a go at writing, I can't focus if I'm if I'm drunk. I think I could definitely have a good artistic conversation after a few drinks, but really, um, the whole the what is it? Was it was it one of the hard boiled writers, Raymond Chandler, or something who said, or was it one of the beats? I don't know. Who said something like, "Write drunk, edit sober." I would probably rather do it the other way around. I don't know, because at least editing doesn't involve a lot of typing. You can mm. be, you can sort of whimsically just tweak a word here. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you I'm, maybe I'm bone-brained or keyboard-brained, whereas these guys are typewriters and pens and paper. But this is a question to Martin and, and to Angus. Do you think Moyen drinks? Do you think he he enjoys his drink, or is this is this should this be considered a a, a book that he's writing sort of after he's sobering up from a banquet and thinking I hate this I hate this drink <laughs> I hate this life or is he a an enthusiastic drinker? Well, you get near the end, he's expressing quite a lot of self hate, or his fictional version is where he's like embarrassed himself at a meal, uh, and he's it's not just that he's becoming inebriated too quickly it's that it's affecting his behavior and bringing out a side of himself he doesn't like where like the female governor walks in and he's so excited to see like a commanding nice woman that he like slips down in his chair so that his head's level with the table or something and he's clearly distressed and it could all just be fiction but i wonder if moyan's had some experiences where he did enjoy the alcohol and is worried that he enjoys it so easily and so much or maybe I'm just projecting. Because I've actually heard that he doesn't drink a lot. I, I don't know. Mm. I mean, maybe much, young Moyan drunk a yeah, lot and he's clear out. Much, uh, fantastic uh, descriptions and uh, fantastic narratives and so on. It's also in, in other Moyan novels. And this one is special because... Uh, it just wears off into a drunken writing. But whether you need to be drunk to do that, I would really doubt. Mm. Yeah, I would, I, would, I, would doubt, I would doubt that. The fascinating thing is that it's, uh, it gets, the whole book gets drunk. But the writer uh, doesn't necessarily need to be drunk to to, to do that to my, write. my feeling about those sections I quoted that I really like that are insanely intense is that they've got all the sorts of feeling of like uh, recklessness that a drunk person would have 
but like he's cranked them so much, or at least in the, trans the English translations, they're so cranked. Every little nook and cranny is filled with something that intensifies it. And the word choice and the flow of ideas is so finely tuned. I would assume he at least edited that very sober and clear-minded because you, yes. can't, you can't toss something like that off. That's been very um, finely tuned to have a maximal effect. Um, can so, I? Yeah. Can I read something from the book? Yeah. All right. This is my favorite. This when I read this passage, I thought, you know, I've I've always sort of, you know, Jia Pingwa and and Mo Yan have had a certain rivalry, and I've always considered myself in the Jia Pingwa camp, and and sort of written off, you know, if if a writer wins the Nobel Prize, you can, you can be sure that their their writing is not worth uh, taking seriously, but there are certain passages here, and I, I'd like to read one for you that just just took my breath away. This this is a little bit later in the novel, the uh, the lady chauffeur, the the lady truck driver has pulled a gun on our narrator. He shuddered a bit, his eyes fixed on the blue steel of the muzzle and the black hole at the end. He was used to pointing guns at other people's heads, always the cat watching the mouse squirm under its sharp claws. Most of those mice facing death trembled with fear and pissed their pants. Only a few could feign calmness, though a shaking fingertip or a twitching at the corner of the mouth usually exposed their fear. Now the cat had become the mouse, the judge had become the judged. He studied his own pistol as if it were the first time he'd seen it. The luster, like a blue glazed tile, was as enchanting as the bouquet of a vintage liquor. Its smooth outlines displayed a kind of evil beauty. At this moment, it was God, it was fate, it was the Grim Reaper. Her large, pale hand squeezed the carved handle. Her long, slender index finger rested against the trigger, just a twitch away from driving the firing pin into the cartridge. Experience told him that a pistol in this state is no longer a piece of cold iron, but a living object with thoughts, feelings, culture, morality. There is an enriched soul within it. It is the soul of the gun holder. Without realizing it, this reverie relaxed him until he was no longer focused on the muzzle from which the bullet would emerge. It was just part of the gun. He took a leisurely drag on his cigarette. That's it. It's delicious. Yes, yes, yes. And it, and it kind of shows what he was... You can you can start to see in what's coming in the novel where he starts it's a it's a little bit hard to read because he starts dropping punctuation in that section and uh it's sort of showing where the novel is going where he's going to uh get into this long uh, sort of a soliloquy uh it's absolutely beautiful i mean moyen at this at this time these novels are not so beloved as as his other novels you know the historical novels about you know where that 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 led him to be considered the Faulkner of, of China, but these novels like Thirteen Steps, Garlic Ballads, where he's he's in the late 1980s, just losing his mind, trying to write like nobody else is writing. These moments are are captured in this book, and uh, it's an absolutely incredible novel. Uh, yeah. I don't think he was drunk at all when he was when he was writing this stuff. He was he was on something else entirely. I was gonna say the bit about the gun having some sentience. 
was like a much 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 better version of that there's a bit in a Schwermore story I did on the show where he describes the bullets that come out of a gun as being alive and like little drops of sperm excitedly flying through the air and I was like what are you doing you freaking idiot <laughs> uh, but with this the evil beauty of a sentient blue and black steel uh, it's, it's great I thought that there's a few bits in this book where he gets like into sinister even like gothic imagery but makes it enticing it's not what i'd go to chinese literature for but he's he's done it or he he did it uh the the, the fact that in the in the back and forth between li do and the fictional moyen li do's like look i've invented a new style it's called demonic realism and you don't know whether to think shut up li do or to think <laughs> oh that's so cool and like even reading secondary discussion of the book a few critics quite i think the consensus was lee those stories are supposed to be deliberately bad writing um but there's bits in them like the demonic baby creature where i'm like that is like so fucked up and like i don't know if i'm misusing a word cranked like it's just so weird and twisted in in a in a good way but also infused with yeah like what seems to be bad writing like i don't know I didn't know what to make of those bits exactly. nearly as well as I did yeah. the more Thanks. straightforward fiction. Uh, Martin, please, go on. No, no, no. Uh, like cranked, you, you mean exaggerated? Right? Crank, yeah, like cranked exaggerated up. and twisted at the same time. Oh, Disturbing, oh, distorted. Okay. Were you going to say something? No, 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 no. I completely agree. Yes. Right. And it is my favorite, um, along with other early of my. Uh, favorite uh, novel or my favorite uh, piece of writing by Moyen. Right. Because of that experiment. Experimental. In the later novels uh, when people talk about them, there's too much history involved. <laughs> yeah. There's, this, there's so much history, like uh, reality, away from the novels involved. And in this joke uh, or uh, you cannot uh, leave the novel behind or uh, the, the, the writing behind and we are off into uh, history or reality and so on. It's just too crazy. You have to, <laughs> you have to uh, <laughs> stick to it. And, and that's, that's what I love about it. It is absolutely realistic. It's a... Uh, very much, you uh, can very much imagine that this is how it goes on, or yeah, and I mean, not exactly, but yeah, so you cannot, I don't know if this makes sense, but you cannot with this novel, I think you, you cannot just discuss history or discuss Moyen or discuss whatever, yeah, <laughs> it's so drunk crazy. Uh, and at the same time, uh, embarrassingly realistic that, yeah, mm -hmm. you have to stick close to that. Like, yeah, I would agree. You're I clearly think. in a particular place in China, somewhere around Shandong, maybe. And you're in a particular time in China's modern China's history, but you're also off the map in another reality. I would agree. I was going to say, so I've read three things by Moyan, and they've all had their own episode on this show now. The first one was Radish. 
Toming de Honglobo, which I really enjoyed because it was getting into how a child perceives the world. So lots of sensory images. I find that personally that was interesting to me long before I read the story. So I loved how yeah it was seemed to be about how you perceive the world and how the language dealt with that. And then the second one was one of these historical novels, like I said, Sandalwood Death, Tan Xiang Xing, which did sort of feel like a conventional historical novel, but also had some avant-garde elements. And at the end, it starts to like break down into like song and it gets stranger and strange, well, a bit more strange and heightened. And then in this one, the last chapter, at least in the translation, it breaks into like uh, like a Virginia Woolf or James Joyce style um uh, what's it called? Flowing. That's terrible. I, I went to university and learned these terms. Monologue. Uh, monologue. Um, Soliloquy. Stream of consciousness. Stream of consciousness. That's it. I'll hand back my my bachelor's degree in English literature. Yeah. 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 So in it's just there's like no full stops. It just goes and goes. I think I have at least one quote from that, uh, or highlight from that. I can read to give the listeners a sample. Okay, um, let me tell you why I'm writing this novel. I read it in a short article where someone was promoted and became rich because of, his, because of his capacity for liquor, which inspired me. Page after page of drunken gibberish and nonsense, froth filling the mouth, the vomit made our puppy drink it, it died, the dog ate it. Made our puppy drunk, it died, the dog ate it. Or is there another one? Uh, dee, 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 dee. Oh, this is a this is a good one. Memories of the Great Leap Forward. How can people eat people? Why can't people eat people? Yi Ya cooked his son and offered him to Juke Huan of Qi, and Liu Bei ate the wife of a hunter, and Black Whirlwind Li Kui ate the leg of a highwayman. Li Kui roasted it first. Lu Shun. Oh, that's one of my words. That's one of the landmines. So I'll take a drink. Opened the diary of a madman and found the words eat people written all over the ancient ledgers. First elder brother was eaten, second elder sister was eaten, little boys were eaten too. Exposes of the corrupt official world, a novel exposing dark secrets. So just, I'll, I'll try and, I'll veer away from deep thoughts and just say interesting factoid, this stream of consciousness chapter isn't in the mainland edition, or at least it wasn't at first. I believe this book got published in Taiwan first with this chapter. In mainland China, it's this one's gone because it references things you can't get published or couldn't at the time and still can't like Great Leap Forward. And in obviously in the English, it's it's restored. So I don't know, maybe just interesting to know that as well as the novel. Yeah, I remember there, there, there was uh, this, this stream of consciousness in the Chinese uh, when mm. I read it in China. Right. But it was uh, uh, at the end of the 1990s so actually I, I don't remember which edition it was uh, read in Chinese well so I, there, I, there is this issue yes mm. that there are differences uh, in the Taiwan editions and then mainland editions uh, uh, in yeah not only uh, Moyen but yeah, many authors greatly forward and uh, Lucien uh, in one of his letters to um, to the PhD candidate, he he talks about uh, Wang Meng. Wang Meng was the, uh, I suppose, was still the minister of culture, if he had not died uh, by that time. Wang Meng had had done numerous experiments in in stream of consciousness. That he was sort of picking up on ideas that had been 
that had been experimented with in the Republican era. Um, there's a great book by Lewin called um, called in English "Armed Christ," which is sort of a riff on Ulysses and the, and the Molly Bloom soliloquy. And Wang Meng sort of picked that up in the 1980s and was was attempting stream of consciousness in in Chinese. And it's it's quite funny that he mentions Wang Meng in in one of the letters to um, to the PhD candidate. The fictional Mo Yan mentions him. And saying, you know, he's 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 quite good. I I, I regret my comments about him, and he, he does the same the same sort of tries the same thing of stream of consciousness in in Chinese. Mm. I know there's supposedly a reference to Wang Shuo in this book. Um, there's a character who's referred to as being like a dangerous gangster you mustn't get involved with because he has powerful friends. I didn't realize Wang Shuo was that deadly. <laughs> I don't think he was. <laughs> Doesn't judging by his Twitter account today, if he ever was, he's he's tamed somewhat. Um, yeah. Speaking of speaking of dangerous gangsters, uh, the next topic I had lined up was just vice, like crime in the novel. I I definitely felt like there was some stuff from like American noir getting hard boiled literature, film noir getting dragged in. Um, so like the little bullet point terms I had for this was vice, crime, but as well as crime transgression, what lines are being transgressed and how are things policed? How does politics come into how things are policed? Like, I think I think it's interesting that it starts off like you might think it's going to be an anti-corruption novel because a guy working for the government is being sent by the government to investigate the government. But he just he doesn't get anywhere. He's not a very great agent of moral virtue because he just folds and falls and fails every single time. Can't even keep his gun. And he waves his it. gun around. Yeah. His gun is all over this thing. All of the great uh, sections we've read is him waving his gun around, ripping off shots or yeah, having his gun pulled on him. What could it mean? Get Dr. Freud on the line. Yeah, he, he can't control his own gun and he loses it. And yeah. And I think he possibly meets a guy with a better gun. He meets a, a what is it, a hero of the revolution. Uh, he is a, he is a lone, he's not reporting to the proper authorities all the time, right? He's not, uh, he's too much uh, alone, which is consistent uh, the, with what you said, uh, uh, Angus, uh, in, uh, with the, um, uh, investigator uh yeah like like the film noir hard investigator an existential uh, yeah yeah he's not really in involved in in a real investigation or not very much yeah i i even found the book a bit frustrating because only about a third of it is our detective and then another third is correspondence between fictional Moyen and Li Yido, and then another third is Li Yido's story. So really, Li Yido has a monopoly on more of the book than the detective. Um, but it doesn't really matter, because the guy gets no real work done, um, and he never calls for help. He really should phone for help, but he doesn't. Maybe that would just change. It would, If he phoned in help, it would become a, a real detective novel, because he would get somewhere. But... He, I think as far as he gets is that where he he sees the braised boy. Actually, I meant to say about the braised boy. So in that scene, uh, he sh he shoots. He's trying to 
I forget what he's trying to do, but he his gun goes off. He shoots it. It hits the head, and the, a big this big splat. And the the party boss and the mine director are like, "Oh yeah, that's watermelon. That's watermelon covering the walls." Um, <laughs> and he's like, "Is it?" And he can never make his mind up if it was a head or if it was what brain matter or watermelon. And that has a connection with Sandalwood Death because the executioner in Sandalwood Death. Bra- I think this is in the first the first chapter. He brags that he cuts off more heads than Galmi County's annual watermelon harvest. So obviously, in Moyan's head, there is a connection between, you know, severed heads and watermelons. Maybe that's just a natural connection anyone would make. But don't know where I was going with that. I think the, the alcohol is taking hold. It's a rather uh, rural connection. Yeah. Uh, Moyen comes from the countryside, and uh, his novels are, are also close to the countryside. So melons are heads. Yeah, that was something that was on my mind reading the book. Is we didn't feel like we were in the big city, didn't feel like we were in the countryside. The opening of the coal mine made it feel to me like we're just sort of permanently. We're either in industry or in wasteland, or at one point there's a sunflower field. It felt like a very unreal landscape. Yeah, it's it's interesting how it how he um, how he jumps from from you know hardcore realism, you know that sort of rural realism which was which very much held sway at the time. Um, you know, you're talking about root seeking literature where you're trying to sort of evoke the countryside. And um, he does that in, in many places, especially at the start of the novel, where where they're driving up with the with the lady driver, and you know the sunflower field, and then he 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 makes these sudden leaps out of that territory, which uh, I think is quite impressive. You know, you have to remember this book was written in in um, 1989, 1989 to nineteen ninety two. He was working on this book, which uh, was a time when when realism held sway. Uh, to a great extent, it, it still does hold sway in China, and and that makes what he's doing even more impressive, I think. Hmm. So I, I do want to hammer a bit more on transgression. Like, there are so many things tra- that are being transgressed. I guess cannibalism, it's not even just cannibalism, it's little little baby boys, and specifically boys, curiously i wonder if there's any significance about that and yeah there's it, it gets tied back if, you, if it hadn't occurred to the reader moyan ties it back to lu shun um there was an interesting thing a chapter i read uh it's called i have a tab open i had a tab have i closed the tab no here it is it was chapter six of a book called post-socialism and cultural politics by Shudong uh, Zhang or Zhang Shudong, I suppose. Six, uh, chapter six, demonic realism. Oh, bunny quote, sorry. Demonic realism and the socialist market economy. Language game, natural history. <clears throat> natural history. Oh dear. <clears throat> natural history and social allegory in Moyans, the Republic of Wine. And there's a bit from that about. My throat's really dry. Maybe I need another. Mm-hmm. Another swig of proper job. <clears throat> yeah, so the this uh, this writer, academic Zhang Shudong pointed out that 
the investigator's last line before he drowns in a vat of uh, shit and uh, food waste is, I protest, I protest, which he says is a comic, could be read as a comic repetition and pastiche of the tragic battle cry, Save the Children, from Lucian's, um, Lucian's Diary of a Madman. So, I've, I mean, I've muddied two points. One was about all the, the transgression of not just... Well, all the transgression that's in the book, for example, the harvesting and, and, and murder of small baby boys, and then how that might, I don't know, is that horror tied into other things, like referencing Arman Lushun? I guess other transgressions, there's all the, um, I'm going to dance around one of my landmine words, all of the um, the uses of sexuality, there's a lot of that right from the get-go. A lot of um quite a lot of horny characters or perverse, perverse characters. Um, what other kinds of transgressions? Eating strange foods that, other than humans, bits of donkeys that Dylan mentioned. I don't know if there's many other there's if there's other kinds of transgression I'm missing, but yeah, like it's quite a shocking book. Does anything else jump out for for you two about transgressiveness? Uh, I mean, a lot of it is is sexual. Like there you um, go. There's the word. That's a- yes, like the uh, our special investigator Dion having intercourse with the lady driver. Um, in that scene, before she pulls a gun on him, she's uh, they're 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 locked in in coitus, and it's photographed by by Yui Chua. And uh, neither of them have really grasped consent. They're often forcing themselves on each other as well. So it right. fails the political correctness test, I have to say. Yes, it is. It is not a particularly politically correct book. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the entire thing about uh, cannibalism and, you know, the, the sacrifice of, of young boys in particular. I mean, if you're eating young girls, that's another matter entirely. But if you're eating young boys, I mean, that's that's sort of a, a bridge too far, I suppose. They appear on the cover in a particular way. I don't really know enough about like Chinese art or cultural history, but it's like the shining, perfect babies with their little bib things. I don't know if that represents something in like Chinese imagery. I don't know if either of you would know that. It feels yeah, very, think... very deliberate, whatever is going on. Yeah, like. Like the baby with the, I think it's it's usually translated by Howard Goldblatt as stomacher. I, I can't remember the Chinese word for yeah. it, but like the the thing that covers the stomach. Yeah, and, and all the, its and very the, rosy cheeks. Yeah, smile. And, and quite fat baby boys. Those are those are the most um, desirable uh, of children. I mean, and 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 as well, you can go back to the time he's writing in the in the nineteen eighties. You know, perhaps he he sees in in not only the excess of the period, but but the fact that this period is is consuming is consuming the the energies, perhaps even the lives of of young men. Um, in in you know, there was a a little bit of a, a problem in 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 the summer of 1989, and. But but that stretches back through the 1980s. 1986 is is a big year for protest. I, I mean, perhaps there's some connection there. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. The 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 essay I just quoted the the. Oh, I was, uh, oh, sorry. Go on. Go on. One child. 
right? Yeah. It, there was a one child policy, and that results in too many boys, and uh, boys are preferred because uh, uh, that way the family name uh, is preserved. And the boys uh, are eaten, so that's uh, even more, uh, yeah, shocking. In this very patriarchal society, uh, yes, it's, it's even more shocking. It's even, even more, I uh, and even more of um, something expensive, you know, something they. Uh, mm-hmm. Not so easily obtained. Yeah. yeah, everything has a everything's a commodity. Everything has a value because it's uh it's the post-socialist China. The the essay I was quoting from, the, yeah, the guy was making a big. He was tying the, the the sort of the intertextual nature of this the novel with Lucian's Diary of a Madman, saying. In Diary of a Madman, the solution, you know, you discover a society is cannibalistic based on exploitation. And then for, for Lucian, the answer is, you know, socialist revolution. Uh, but by the time Diogo has rolled around, we've done that. Um, and we ended up eating each other during a famine. So we, we try out the free market. And hey, presto, we are still eating each other. So what, what do we do about it? Nothing. We, we just sort of drown in our own shit and say, I protest. Um, but, you know, it's not like the detective was on a mission before he falls, in, falls into the, the vat. He's, he's not an ideological crusader. And he's not, he's not becoming, he's, he's not waking up to the, the horrible reality like our guy in Diary of a Madman. So, it, I don't know, it, it, it felt all too familiar as a Westerner that, you know, it's, it's the turn of the 80s into the 90s. It's the end of history. We no longer know how to get rid of, you know, man-eating man. We we just accept it and then make ironic jokes about it instead. I wondered if it was just as simple as that. Shrug. Mm, yeah, <laughs> well, in, shrug. In Diary of Madman, uh, uh, narrated in the way that the, the style, it becomes mad. Right? It's uh, it, it's not a, a very coherent narrative anymore, and and, and that's uh, the same in in in, in Chukuo. Yeah, you said the narrator wakes up, yes, but it's also disturbed very much, and the narration is disturbed. And we're told and, there's, and that's oh, obvious, and that's uh, what's uh, what they what they have in common, and what's rather rare in, especially in, in mainstream uh, uh, literature. And Moyen is mainstream. We're we're told there's a note at the start of Diary of a Madman which says, "Oh yeah, he got better later." So this this it's saying like this guy, my my cousin or my 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 brother, whoever. This was his diary. He became mad for a while. He's better now. He's got a he's got a nice job. Whereas our main guy Dingo are in um, Republic of Wine, like I said, plummets into a, a vat and drowns. But the guy he's blurring into fictional Moyan slash real Moyan 
we gather has gotten better. He got very drunk. He embarrassed himself at an official dinner, but now he's in recovery. So I guess the author himself goes on a changed man, even if even if uh, the narrator doesn't. Uh, if have we got much else to say about transgression? Because uh, I can take it on to the next thing. I I think that was sort of a sort of an interest of of Moyen in this period. You have these three books, which are the Garlic Ballads, Thirteen Steps, and um, there's another one called Herbivorous Family, which cast aside for the moment, and and Republic of Wine. And in the Thirteen Steps, you have a uh, the narrator is 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 a man who's locked in a cage and is forced to tell these stories about um you know terrible grotesque events uh, like a man whose whose face is removed to to furnish a new face for um for a party boss that kind of thing the garlic ballads is is uh, also in, in sort of the same vein in that it's about a protest it's about the protest of 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 farmers transgressing to use that word uh, against the authority of the of the party itself and um you know republic of wine is is in some sense sort of a a carnival uh carnival of of transgression that's that's taking place in in that small town where where everybody is is breaking the the rules that um you know have been set by you know from time immemorial against against consuming children and and against sex and against against uh overindulgence in in liquor um i i, I think moyen especially in this period like 1985 to 1989 is is really interested in that in that theme of the grotesque and the transgressive that he he drops eventually yeah the dark carnival if you will yeah okay so i had, I had my next section was going to be all about the style the language the translation is it all is it all word games we talked quite a lot about that already there was one thing i was going to say i i that i didn't get to when we're talking about how the story ends how it sort of breaks down i've read um it's probably a thing a lot of experimental novels do where the the story reaches a crisis and that becomes a good opportunity to throw in your experimental uses of language because the thing's breaking down there was a book i read um whilst living in shanghai not a translated one but um by a chinese singaporean author which every now and then would throw in a Chinese just Chinese characters as into the text very very rarely at first but the novel starts to break down it's called breaking the tongue and a character is being tortured and as they're being tortured and their tongue gets cut by the the Japanese invaders the language breaks down as well into Chinese which I couldn't read it apart from like every every fifth or tenth character or something so yeah I, I nothing to say there i just i missed that point and i thought i'd throw it in but um do you think any of the use of language or the style is all just showiness or games or is it all serving a purpose because like there were I, again when i was re-listening to me and stuff i'm talking about sandalwood death 
there was a point where like character there's a name of a kind of opera Maoqiang Moyan changed the whatever the Mao character was to the Mao that means cat and he had characters meowing and it seemed Stefan said it seems like he's just having fun here um whether that's the case or not I guess only the author knows but do you think the novel is like just being playful what do you think's going on with the, the decision to make it so experimental it has to break down it has to become drunk that's the point of the whole novel right it's like a drunk person they steadily get worse the book the yeah the book has to break down basically the the model the narration first walking then running then stumbling crawling puking and then trying to make it back to bed um yes yeah i it why didn't I think of it that way? That's that's crazy. Um, satire came up a lot in secondary reading I'm doing. So there were suggestions that he was satirizing maybe Lushun. I'm not maybe, I don't know, smart enough to see what else is being satirized. Maybe, I don't know if Moyan was reading Raymond Chandler. Like, D- Dylan, you're pretty well read. Do you think he was satirizing anything else? I think it's hard to say. I think in to a great extent he was he was sort of reacting against everything that was going on in 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 Chinese literature of the time where there was this uh, this great interest in 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 realism and and I think his greatest interest was in revolting against that realism and um you know he's uh, he's always considered a great magical realist ah, but he... there's another thing all right let's take a drink to that mm. but i i mean i mean i think he's he's sort of reacting to everything that's going on in in chinese literature and trying to do the opposite trying to break away from the realism of chinese literature of the time and and going back to sort of uh modernist literature that that he was that he was reading in the 1980s i i suppose yeah i i'm not very well read on kafka uh, there's a kafka novel i would love to read but i only ever listened to an audiobook uh, in in audiobook form and perhaps appropriately the track order was scrambled so i couldn't really tell like i was making any progress through it the novel was the castle the one he never finished and in which the protagonist never makes any progress um he's sent to um kafka's hero in that book is sent to a castle to do some land surveying he needs to get into the castle to speak to the the landowners about starting the job and he just can't get anywhere and he's going back and forth i I believe between like the few recurring settings and again i don't really know the book inside out but i noticed in this one in this weird landscape our guy isn't really getting anywhere and he keeps going back to the same places like Donk, is it Donkey Avenue? And another parallel with Kafka, again, I don't know him, but I've read a guide to him, is there's a lot of self-hate. He often referred to himself or his characters as being like, you know, disgusting worms, no self-esteem. He might well, he turns he turns himself into a beetle in one of the stories. And yeah, we have a guy in this book who has hemorrhoids, I think soils himself. He's constantly embarrassing himself. And then when we meet Moyan. He's also he also massively embarrasses himself as well by overindulging. He refers to himself as ugly, 
quite a few times doesn't like looking at himself in the mirror because he sees an ugly middle-aged man so yeah i don't know the i and i feel like maybe that just plugs into like human feelings about corruption unless we're totally lost when we get implicated into corrupt indulgences we probably healthy natural reaction is to feel like a piece of shit if you're being like a, if you're being a piece of shit you should feel like it i feel like that's an aspect of the book as well self-hate absolutely um you know there's a really interesting scene when when moyen himself arrives in 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 liquor land and he's uh he's not particularly upstanding he's not particularly good he uh he yeah he has a lot to drink and he he doesn't really have a lot to say you know he says a lot in the novel but the moyen when he arrives in in the place itself is 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 basically complicit in the entire enterprise yeah and he meets some party officials that feel much more like real party officials and it's like a much more it's a less cartoonish less scary version of the same thing where like a party boss comes out and he like sings beautifully and impresses everyone and isn't too worried that moyan might be writing something that makes him look bad and moyan is just like this cringe from what i remember is a sort of cringing, awkward figure who doesn't really know how to gel with these cool government officials. If government officials ever have been cool in China, I don't know, but the ones in the book are, relatively speaking, slick. And, you know, the entire context is, you know, a book written in the late 1980s by Mo Yen. Mo Yen went through times of great um, scarcity and 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 the time he's writing is a period um in the late 1980s you know in in the late 19 in the 1990s and the 2000s it would become even more intense but this time of conspicuous consumption and this time when 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 party officials were were kind of living large compared to you know the 1970s or 1960s in in Shandong when 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 things would have been much much tighter and and I think to a great extent he he recoils from that and he also recoils from his own um his own relative wealth his own relative um excess and surplus what would you say that period of history is called which period the 19 the, the period of a the yeah, one you were talking about yeah which period the, the 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 period of 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 with nothing or the period with with, with lots in the 19th yeah okay well <laughs> we could call the golden age uh, uh, after it's uh, not taking the bait another right what 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 age do we call it um Gaiga Kaifang, which in english oh, is, is what, Dylan, what's that in english Re- reform and opening yes <laughs> he's he's enjoying i i mean that's 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 what he's that's what yeah. he's writing about this yeah. it's if you if you want to talk about it as a, as a political allegory um um Wang Dewey or David Derwei Wang mm. talks about it, um these four decades of pent-up desire mm. and suddenly asceticism is replaced with excess and every every single dream you could ever have whether for women or for wine is realized or and, for, or for uh, men, that, if you're a woman, maybe. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You could you could be a lady driver and uh, stumble across a uh, dashing, well armed um, special investigator of the party. 
uh, but it, it yeah, made, it made me wish reading that over and over. Lady Trucker, that there should be a good, you know, female form of the word trucker, or even I was thinking as well, maybe if you were trying to gloss it, you'd throw out the word lady, but then maybe he's being faithful to whoever Oyan wrote it. Anyway, I should have, when you hit the landmine, I should have taken a drink. I actually finished my beer. I need, I, I do need the bathroom. So I'll probably take a quick break, come back, and then I'll take us to the the final sections. Okay. I got a dog to walk before it gets dark, unfortunately. All right. So be back in like two minutes. Martin, you're looking very soulful. Are you okay? <laughs> it's quite a beautiful image. Unless the camera's frozen. Oh, anyway, I'll come back in two minutes and see if it's okay. Amazes. Okay. Have we lost Martin? Yes, he said his his Zoom has frozen. Oh, right. It's frozen an amazing image. Yes, he almost looks like a Renaissance painting yeah. of the of the artist contemplating the heavens. Yeah, it was earlier when the, the lighting was getting a bit more chiaroscuro. I felt like I was in one of these new movies, like a horror movie set entirely in Zoom, and something's going to jump <laughs> and get him. But I guess we should just proceed because i can't i can't hang around that long unfortunately but i, I can crack open my other beer yes i'll just message uh, him not saying as much yes unfortunately i've gotten quite drunk so i've <laughs> i my coherency has really dropped i i am not I making a lick of sense i think you're all right you're getting more effusive but oh good good it's good. a bit like saying um well i what, what would what would an equivalent be? I turned on the heating and now it's getting all hot. How did this happen? Yes. Um, we'll keep going. Try to rejoin. But if you can't, it's okay. Okay, I'll just uh, I'm gonna leave my headphone to get this other beer. Okay. Right. So we'll we'll just we'll just keep going. Um, I was going to take it to the word of the day, the Chinese word of the day section. Um, but I mean, before before going on to all this, these, uh, the miscellaneous section, is there anything we've not said you want to say? Anything you've not uh, quoted yet? I've actually got something I've, I want to say that I haven't used yet. Uh, I would gladly read a section, but... Uh... No, I'm good. I'm good. If you're if you're feeling self conscious, you can copy and paste. No, the no, text I, and I'll read it. No, no, I'll I'll read. I'll read. Okay. All right. Shall I read? Yeah, please. You're concerned that my famous Donkey Avenue dish, Dragon and Phoenix Lucky together, would attract flies. Please forgive my arrogance, but I think Mo Yen doth protest too much. What's filthy about a dish that even famed critics and renowned musicians from Beijing shovel down their throats as fast as they can? What we are pursuing is beauty, nothing but beauty. It's not true beauty if we didn't create it. Creating beauty with beauty is not true beauty either. Real beauty is achieved by transforming the ugly into the beautiful. This has two levels of significance. Let me explain. First, there's no beauty in sticking a donkey dick inside a donkey pussy and putting them on a plate because they are dark as pitch, incredibly filthy, and they stink like hell. No one would eat them, that's for sure. But 
the head in each tavern, soaks them in fresh water three times, bathes them in bloody water three times, and boils them three times in soda water. Then he strips the penis of its sinewy parts and plucks the pubic hair before frying them both in oil, simmering them in an earthen pot, and steaming them in a pressure cooker, after which he carves different patterns with his refined skills. Adds rare seasoning, decorates the dish with bright-colored cabbage hearts, and voila, the male donkey organ is transformed into a black dragon and the female organ into a black phoenix. A dragon and a phoenix kissing and copulating, coiling around an array of reds and purples, filling the air with fragrance and looking so alive, a treat for the mind and the eye. Isn't that transforming the ugly into the beautiful? Second, Donkey dick and donkey pussy are vulgar terms that assail one's propriety and cause the imagination of the weak will to run wild. Now we change the former into the dragon and the latter into the phoenix, for the dragon and the phoenix are solemn totems of the Chinese race, lofty, sacred, and beautiful symbols. And that's it. Um, you could do a whole podcast episode on that. Um, there was there was a bit actually in um, in that chapter from the academic book that I thought uh, it, it's somewhat relevant to that. Uh, let me just find it. Uh, oh, have I lost it somehow? Oh, no, here it is. Um, so it says, the reasons to drink are, to be sure, as numerous as they are convincing. The rhetoric of patriotism, resist, resist foreign liquor, drink Chinese contribution to the state the liquor tax being an important source of revenue for the central government improvement of the relationships of leaders to the masses local customs drinking even numbers working class solidarity in a toast pardon me in a toast for the charcoal faced coal miners who cannot be at the banquet and filial piety drink in the name of aging mothers and i think the reason i'm quoting that is there's an awful lot of like sophistry in the book, like perverse arguments for ridiculous things. And a lot of it, I think, is geared towards implication. I like eating donkey genitals. I'm going to use my clever words to bring you into this devious act. I like drinking too much. I'm going to lure you in and implicate you and so on. And the other thing I was going to say is much more basic. Oh, Martin's back. Hello, Martin. We're talking. I don't know if you can hear us, Martin. We're talking again about the, the donkey genitals. When... I talk about how I came away from living in China, really enjoying Chinese food and seeking out the, the legit legit stuff here in the UK. Common response I get is, oh, it's all grossly weird stuff. I don't like it. And when I reply, first thing I say is, no, a lot of it is very diverse and there's lots of stuff you'd like, even if there's lots of stuff you don't like. But yes, they do eat lots of weird animals, or at least they're the weird animals are, are part of the cuisine. And yeah, Moyan's even, I guess, using it for his own ends. I don't know if people do eat donkey genitals in China, but it doesn't seem like a huge stretch of the imagination. No, I mean, I've eaten sheep genitals in China. So I, and Jia Pinghua frequently writes about a dish called Tian Tian Rou, which is uh, a sliced up donkey penis, which looks like coins. Yeah. And it's actually, I've learned being a dog owner because I had a dog as a teenager, but I wasn't completely in charge of the house. But now I'm a dog owner. I am me and my girlfriend are at the you know the, the top of the train of authority. We buy all the stuff for the dog. We've learned it's very easy to buy penises for your dog 
in the UK. They're called pizzles. So if you ever right. get a pizzle for your dog, they won't tell you unless you ask, but that's a dried up willy of an animal. So, you know, the stuff's everywhere. It's just, it's obscured a bit more in the West, perhaps. You don't know that your pizzle, what a pizzle is, in, unless you go looking. Yes, and uh, a very popular alcohol is called Sanbianjiu, which is a deer penis. I believe it's a dog penis and a cow penis it are are suffused in in some something like brandy, and it it is uh, very good for your uh, male health. I would say. I managed to avoid that one. Well, I think I did. Maybe I didn't avoid it, and I I did drink it. There's a more a more wholesome thing I'll bring up uh, before we go to the miscellaneous section. I, I did really want to quote this. It's it's a it's from a tea drinking, a poem about tea drinking rather than alcohol. And to be honest, it's not deeply deeply relevant to the book. But it's I I learned about this one uh, <clears throat> listening to an episode of a show I've mentioned on this show a few times, a podcast called Weird Studies, where they did an episode. Uh, Whereas at some brewery where a brewer decided to launch a beer named after them, but they talked about drinking and tried to like philosophize about it. And they said that drinking is tied up with two things that are worth analyzing a ritual, how like the rituals around how we consume substances can become as pleasurable or as addictive as the substances themselves and the cultural attachments that go with that. And also that something like, I guess, especially an addictive substance like alcohol, repetition is important. You have one, then you have another. But through repeating and through ritual, you if you think about it, you will learn that or you experience that repetition is never really repetition because the first cup, the first drink, the first bite is never the same as the second. They have a different quality. Although maybe once you get to like five, six, seven, eight, that's not true anymore. But uh, they were reading... Um, a Zen philosopher, Japanese Zen philosopher who was quoting a Tang poet, Lu, Ta, Lu Tong is is the the name I'm seeing here on the, the screen I the on, on the screen from the blog the blogspot uh, post I found that has this this uh, poem by Lu Tong, the Tang Dynasty poet about tea drinking. So think about this as like your your shots of liquor or your bottles of beer. The first cup moistens my lips and throat. The second cup breaks my loneliness. The third cup searches my barren entrails, but to find therein some thousand volumes of odd ideographs. The fourth cup raises a slight perspiration. All the wrongs of life pass out through my pores. At the fifth cup, I am purified. The sixth cup calls me to the realms of the immortals. The seventh cup, ah, but I could take no more. I only feel the breath of the cool wind that rises in my sleeves. Where is Elysium? Let me ride on this sweet breeze and waft away thither. I think our main guy in... Um, Dingguar doesn't really get this lovely experience, but he does dive down the levels of hell as he gets more drunk. So yeah, I I don't really have any reason for linking this to the book. I just thought it's a great it's a great meditation on the experience of going through the levels of consuming something. It's tea in this case, but I think it totally applies for for getting drunk as well. So I thought I'd quote it. But I'm running out of time here, so I'll take us to the word of the day. Do either of you want to link a word of the day to Jiuguo, to Republic of Wine? How about Jiu Liang? Jiu Liang, okay. Jiu Liang means capacity or ability to drink. Uh, right, okay. You, if you're drinking well, somebody might say, 
his his capacity, his ability to drink is quite good. Yeah, this is a thing we didn't bring up. Uh, Dylan sent me an article by one Astrid Muller. I think she has a double-barreled surname, Astrid Muller something, uh, who I've spoken to before on the internet, but also has a, a piece, uh, an essay on this book. And the thing she wanted to underline is that capacity for drinking alcohol is totally the basis of power. Our villain, Diamond Jin's biggest superpower is that he basically can't get drunk. And she emphasizes that this is really tied up with manliness, both in like modern, well, a lot of a lot of societies, she says, not just China, but in um, in Chinese society, in banquets, and indeed in this book, like that's the big deal is how much can you, it's, it's great to drink, but it's not cool if you get drunk, which is obviously there's some contradictions there, but it's totally at play in this book. If you can drink, you're cool. If you get drunk, you're a loser. So no one wins really, because none of us are immune. No, definitely not. I'm uh, I'm drunk now. My jiu liang is 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 very poor. I'm I'm thirty. I can feel it getting weaker. Yes, definitely. The twenties are over. The thirties have begun. Um, Martin, would you also want to suggest the word of the day? Or are you happy with jiu liang? And here you is your mic not working? Maybe I think your mic's not working, Martin. Yeah, we we can see you speaking, but I, but we don't hear you. Okay, um, I'm going to keep us moving. Maybe Martin can get his audio working. Okay, a piece of music to pair with Jiu Guo. Um, Dylan, does anything spring to mind for you? Um, yeah, a song by the Pogues. Oh, nice. Um, uh, Mr. Shane McGowan was, was obviously drinking a lot. The song is At the Sick Bed of Coolahan, which is a, a terrible song about about drinking on each side of you with bottles in their hand give me one more drop of poison and you'll dream of foreign lands when you pissed yourself in frankfurt and got sipped out in cologne and you're at the rattling stack trains as you lay there all along frank ryan bought your whiskey in a brothel in madrid and you take some fucking blackshirt who was cursing all the yeds the lyrics go McCormick and Richard Tauber are singing by the bed. There's a glass of punch below your feet and an angel at your head. There's devils on each side of you with bottles in their hands. You need one more drop of poison and you'll dream of foreign lands. And is there a rationale besides it's about booze? Uh, no, well, yes. In fact, it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of an, there's, there's a line in, in, in Tiokua in Republic of Wine about uh, our our hero is entering the gates of hell at a certain point late in the book. And and this song at the sickbed of Coolahan is is sort of a similar evocation of of a sort of uh entry into hell mm. via liquor. It sort of uh, sort of hits some of the same notes about seeing angels and devils and and scaly boys and whatnot. So I I, I think it I think it matches quite nicely. Mm. Yes, it's funny the capacity of booze to open up heaven and hell. Although I feel like the real hell of alcoholism is nothing to do with your drunken state. It's the damage it does to your to your life. Like I'm yes. sure I've read people saying you you'll know you're an alcoholic or if you have a problem if it's affecting your daily life if, and like I'm all right now but when I think back to the previous decade 
yeah, there was a few things that were totally avoidable, uh, unforced errors that were just from from alcohol. So, listeners, if you're thinking that describes you, consider having a tea instead, maybe. Yes. Every now and yes. then. Yes. Not all the time, but every now and then. Yeah, I mean that's 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 sort of the great message of the book is it it's quite it's quite ironic to drink after reading the book, which is such a great um, a great you know reminder not to drink. It's it's such a it's such a terrible um, evocation of 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 what alcoholism is and what drunkenness is, and it's it it should be a reminder never to drink. As, as as that Pogue song is, which is uh, you should never be like Shane McGowan and 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 lose all your teeth to uh, to drink. Yeah, uh, although I guess it's probably true for a lot of great works of of art, art literature that deal with drugs or or booze. They can be great love songs to those substances, but also great warnings like the one that springs to mind immediately is um, Fear and Loving in Las Vegas. Like I'll bet a lot of people who use drugs think that's a really great story about drugs, but also it shows you quite clearly how those characters end up all washed up. But I guess it, it didn't it didn't dissuade the author himself. I should I should share my choice as well. I I've thought of another one, uh, which I will have used as an intro probably to either the second segment or the episode. I'll get to that one. But the the one I picked first it's by a band called Dog Fashion Disco. I believe that's a polite way of saying doggy style disco. The track is Magical Band of Fools. It's very transgressive. Uh, there are songs about like slicing up murder victims like pieces of meat, uh, but also lots of silly carnival-esque stuff. Magical Band of Fools is probably one of the less uh it's one of probably one of the only PG the most PG or one of the most PG songs on the album, besides from a cover of the song Grease from the musical Grease. That's in there as well. So it's an extremely weird sometimes corny album that's in there it's carnivalesque it feels like clowns are singing it uh, but it occasionally gets intense that's why i picked it and then the other one this was a favorite when i was an alcoholic undergraduate uh, the band is every time i die uh, they've got a song called partying is such sweet sorrow Found it, I carried it home. Oh my girl, lady, 
And I'll, I'll just read the first verse, because I think it links with that tea poem I read. At the bottom of the first drink, I found my nerve. At the bottom of the next one, I met my girl. At the bottom of the third drink, I found a fourth. And at the bottom of that one was a Trojan horse that carried in demons who brought their brides and they tempted darkness when I lost my mind. Well, the fifth drink found it and carried it home where my girl was waiting one foot out the door. That's like the first half of um, Republic of Wine. It's it's quite a close match. So, yeah, I'll, I'll go for those two. Uh, I had a section. I got about 10 minutes before I need to fuck off and walk the dog. Um, so we were going to take pot shots at Howard Goldblatt or or worship him, one or the other. Um, but we don't have to do that. If there's anything else you want to talk about, Dylan. Uh, no, I mean, in a certain sense, I wish uh, Howard Goldblatt had gone further and not and not talked about mounds and derriere. Mm. I mean, I, I haven't heard the word derriere in 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 a work of modern fiction, you know, published after 1950, but. You know, Howard Goldblatt is a is uh, for everything bad I have to say about him. He's uh, he's he's translated some of the some of the best works of of Chinese fiction, and he's been a, a you know a, an indefatigable booster of Chinese fiction. So I really can't say anything about him. And and any day now, he's he's scheduled to drop dead. I mean, he's in Hawaii driving around in a BMW. So I I would like to be him more than I would like to uh, tear down his his image. Is there is, is there any like common critique among translators a gripe? Yes, yes, yes. Aside from I he's, mean, he's getting all the work or he got all the work. Yes, I mean every translator hates Howard Goldblatt. Um, <laughs> um, they hate him for his sort of simplistic. 1950s baby boomer or not even a baby boomer he's the greatest generation right. um you know milk toast language mm. but what are you gonna do he's the best there ever was he's um his his choice of novels is also you know questionable in that he likes the he likes the dissident novel that's that's what he's always liked since the 1970s um so a lot of a lot of what chinese literature gets translated into english is very shaped by his 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 interest and his perspective so um there's a lot that's interesting that hasn't been translated but what are you gonna do he's the best so you know that's funny. We're at episode ninety nine of the podcast, and I'd never thought of or been. No one has said to me, "Yeah, he's he's too safe in his word choices." And oh dear, I'm I'm definitely been drinking because I forgot the second point you made that that he oh yes that he favors dissident stuff. I'd never heard it put forward that that was sort of down to the influence of one man. I wondered my assumption. There was a thing I assumption I went in from the get go is this is Western tastes we privilege. The, the people that we imagine as as dissidents or or rebels okay and, and from my understanding he's like translated so many things some that have been big commercial successes others that are like there's there's translations of his i've like learned about from like they're they're 10 years old i've only just heard of them because they're 
buried in some academic press. My understanding is he's very spread out. Maybe the ones that have commercially done the best are by some people who are somewhat rebellious or outright rebellious. Yeah, I mean, he is he is um he is a beast if I could if I could put that in, in that he's sort of like an that. like an like an octopus that that sucks up everything. So he's he's done books like Notes of a Desolate Man mm. by by Zhu Tianwen, who's a a Taiwanese writer who wrote about a, a gay man dying of AIDS and he tackled that book if he had not callback I can't I can't resist I think you boosted that book when you first came on the show you recommended yes it. yes I That's... apologize I'd never I've still not read it such an incredible book and absolutely unspeakably creative and deep book and and if not for Howard Goldblatt we would never have read it but I mean Howard Goldblatt's tastes Howard Goldblatt is very funny he's he's sort of like a typical American greatest generation liberal who's very interested in these books that attack the Communist Party mm. you know he's interested in 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 you know he was never interested in Japinghua Xiaoping was, of, of course, my favorite favorite writer. He was never interested in Xiaoping Hua, who's sort of number two to Mo Yan in 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 esteem in the in the Chinese um, literary elite. He was never interested in him because he wasn't dissident enough. Um, but uh, and and Howard Goldblatt is always plays it safe. You know, in the hands of a of a younger translator, in the hands of a of a more risk taking translator, this book, Republic of Wine, would be much filthier. Would be there wouldn't be so much mentions of peckers and uh, whatever other euphemisms he uses for for the penis. It, it would have been much much filthier like if you had if you had given me the book uh it would have been a, it would have been an unpublishably filthy book which uh, you know to my uh not to my credit but to my detriment would be perhaps not in the spirit of the book so howard goldblatt is this is this um person who you must esteem who you must credit with with bringing so many great books into translation, but especially as a translator, you have to question some of his choices. You know, maybe it's because his wife is like his first proofreader. Yeah, that's like, right. Don't be naughty. Yeah, that's right. And 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 she's a brilliant translator um, on her own. Uh, whatever her name is, Sylvia Liu. Sylvia Lin, I think. Sylvia Lin. Lin okay. Yeah. Uh, she's she's a brilliant translator on her own, and I think she steers Howard towards some um, correct choices. But you can see it's very funny that, that the greatest translator of Chinese literature is somebody who is in their 80s and who is not long for this world. And there's there's no figure um, that approaches him. You know, you have people like Jeremy Tiang. I think Ooh. I think it's Jeremy is the like yeah. he gets a lot of work and it's good stuff. And, and you can see the great difference. Like Jeremy Tiang is 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 sort of the the inheritor of the of the great of the great translator. Or um, you know, I, I I came on here before and I said 
Howard Goldblatt was Jay Z and, and Nikki Harmon is and, Nas. Yeah, Nikki Harmon was Nas. Nikki Harmon is 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 also not a young woman. I I don't want to be telling any tales out of school. I don't want to be. I think she's young at she's heart. She's young at heart. She's absolutely brilliant, but there's absolutely nobody to to follow those people but to, except for Jeremy Tiong, mm. who is also not a young man. He's 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 in his forties, I believe. Looks great though. Um, maybe it's a sign of success though that the, the translator's field and the range of books is getting more diffuse. It's a bit like with subcultures in the internet. Thinking of, I realize I said I'd go at four. It's three minutes to four here in the UK, so I'll speak triple speed. Um, in say the seventies or the eighties, you have subcultures that are very easy to spot, that are clear, you know, concentrated things, and there's only so many of them. The internet comes along; they're still subversive tendencies in our cult in Western culture, but they're diffuse, miniature. It's hard to point to any one thing surging ahead, and it seems to me like more and more Chinese lit is getting translated to English. There's an awful lot of translators. Maybe it's just that the field is broadened, so it's much less likely that any one person will become a figurehead the whole thing just becomes more diffuse and then we can't point to a replacement for howard because the state of play has changed so much that there can't be one yeah that could be that could be what is that some mark fisher kind of bs (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i'm joking i'm joking mark fisher would be would be more pessimistic it would be things are getting worse we don't have um enough uh i don't know state subsidized um patricians i have something to say popular modernist translations that would be mark fisher my final my final comment final ever contribution to to this yes final contribution ever to this yes in this is this is the penultimate episode of the translated chinese fiction podcast in that i think it's a gosh darn shame that that this is that it, that it is ending, and I, I, I should be on the final episode. You should give me a give me can, some space it's, on the it's final be a episode. Party, so you can show up. All right, all right, all right. So but it's not I the final think, contribution, probably. All right, but, but I think what you've done is absolutely incredible. And if anybody goes out there and reads Howard uh, Howard Goldblatt's translation of The Republic of Wine by Mo Yen, you've done a great service that you perhaps you don't even understand. I don't fully understand. That that you've done a great service to the people, to the masses, to to popularize these works, and 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 there's absolutely nobody doing what you do, and I I I fear that you don't quite understand the great contribution you've made to to the culture at large and to the culture of 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 you know of of. Chinese literature and translations. So is this I, is this where we talk shit about the Chinese literature podcast? My my nemesis is. No 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 God no! I've been a guest on uh, yeah. of their podcast too. So I I mean they're slightly too academic. I I I kind of you know I have a great chip on my shoulder about academics. You know I'm a like the notorious Big said a high school dropout made more money than my teachers. You know that I feel kind of the same way. They called the police when I was, you know, in front of their building trying to hustle to feed my daughter. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I think you've done a great thing, and I, I think anyone to 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 push people to go read these books, these difficult books, and to expand people's image of what Chinese literature and translation did is 
I think you've done a great thing with that. And that's that's also the reason why I cannot fault Howard Goldblatt, who's 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 as as somebody who's translated these books, I know that he's expended hours of effort, mm. hours of blood, sweat, and a tears. career, a lot of a life. Exactly. And and I and I, I don't say with any resentment to use the Nietzschean word, uh, his his driving of a of a BMW because I think he should be driving a BMW. A translator who can afford one is a great thing. Yes, I should be driving a BMW too. That's my final words. Absolutely. I should be driving a at least a three series BMW. Yeah, well, it's not over yet. You, it might still happen. And I'd say I'm I'm looking at his translation of Japanese Ruined City. I was going to ask. That's interesting that he's not doesn't get dirty enough and he's not into Japping Wa because that's a dirty Japping Wa book. But maybe that's for the next episode because I, I do have to scoot. All yeah. right, all right. Let, let me get you out of here. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of his books are up there as ebooks, which means even if they run out of print, hopefully the files, you know, yes. the files will stay there for posterity. So, yes, I should scoot. But thank you for coming on, Dylan. Thank you for coming on, Martin. Martin has messaged in our three way WeChat group saying, uh, his final piece of analysis. This is a good one. Jogwa is not about individual drinking, not very much choice, but whether or not you drink as an individual. So it's not a warning about individual drinking, but rather about the culture, about society. The characters don't have very much choice to drink or not in the long run. And definitely, I've been on the receiving end of that. Uh, teachers, nights out in Zhejiang province, where like I think as a foreigner I could have gotten away with refusing the baijiu, but yeah, it's a bit shitty if you don't want to drink, and you're being pressured to. So wholesome final lesson: you can always say no, but you can also always say yes as well to the next drink. You you said you'd let me go. I have to let myself go. Thanks for coming All on, right. Dylan, and see you for the hundredth episode, the party where I think at the very least I'll have a, at least one drink. All right, all right. I hope I wasn't too incoherent. No, I think you got more coherent as you went on. All right, all right. And I'll have a good night. Hopefully, Howard wasn't listening. No, Howard, I love Howard. Don't don't say anything like that. I love you, Howard. I love you, I so love you Howard. <laughs> Howard, you son of a bitch. I love you. <laughs> all right, we've come to the end of the penultimate episode. Before I put the show on hiatus. So the next episode, uh, episode 100, I'm planning to just be like a party, freeform one of it like I did for episode 50. So this is sort of like the last standard episode, at least until I resurrect the show. I assume I will at some point. I mean, I don't want to promise because you know how life is. You intend to come back to something and sometimes you never do. Like That might happen, but it is somewhat my intention to bring, to bring the show back. And there's certainly no shortage of uh, books, short stories that are eligible for being covered. So I just want to say a really big thank you to all of you listeners. Um, I don't really have big plugs to do because I'm going to be uh, pausing all payments on the Patreon, probably not uploading anything up there, and I may make it all available for free. Um, I'll decide about that later. Um, and I guess the the one bit of promo I can do is just to say if you've not listened to, if you've only if you've only listened to a few episodes of this podcast, I strongly advise you go look through the the back catalogue. A fun place to do that would be the show's homepage, trchafic.com, T-R-C-H-F-I-C.com. That's got like uh, tags and categories and lists and all sorts of things that you can use to explore the episodes. But to get back to the point, just a huge thank you to all of you because you are the people I do this for. 
For sure. The show's been going since 2018, so it's not been five full years, because we're just starting, or I should say, it's not been six full years. No, hang on, I'm getting my maths wrong. I started the show in 2019, and here we are finishing up in 2023, although I think 2024, but I did start early in the year, I think, in 2019, so I guess we are, it's going to land about having run for five years. So, yeah, um... I've done it. It has a huge. It's had a huge, huge effect on the direction of my life. Maybe as sizable as the time I spent living and working in China. And if one does the maths, I have been running the show longer than that period of actually living there. I think it's that's fair to say. I kind of wish I could have done more episodes in this stretch of time, but um, life's got in the way. I edit these things quite heavily, and I try to make them very polished. If I was to bring the show back, I might make it a more streamlined format where I could bang episodes, maybe shorter episodes out a bit faster, but it's all theoretical. So yeah, it's essentially, although this thing has benefited me a lot in many ways, brought me new new friends, new kinds of enjoyment, new horizons, it really has primarily been to put something onto the internet that wasn't already there, that people would get something out of. So if that's done it for you, good. That's what I, that's what I wanted. That was the mission. So... Yeah, um, tune in for the next episode if you'd like to hear a sort of party conversation about Chinese lit. If that doesn't bother you, and this is going to be basically the last one for you before I resurrect the show and of course you loyally return, then thank you very much. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your drinking buddy, and Saijian.